Book Two, Chapter Twenty Three of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Twenty Three. Mistress Affery makes a conditional promise respecting her dreams. Left alone with the expressive looks and gestures of Mr. Baptist, otherwise Giovanni Baptista Cavalletto, vividly before him, Clennam entered on a weary day. It was in vain that he tried to control his attention by directing it to any business occupation or train of thought. It rode at anchor by the haunting topic, and would hold to no other idea. As though a criminal should be chained in a stationary boat on a deep clear river, condemned, whatever countless leagues of water flowed past him, always to see the body of the fellow-creature he had drowned lying at the bottom, immovable and unchangeable, except as the eddies made it broad or long, now expanding, now contracting its terrible lineaments. So Arthur, below the shifting current of transparent thoughts and fancies which were gone, and succeeded by others as soon as come, saw, steady and dark, and not to be stirred from its place, the one subject that he endeavoured with all his might to rid himself of, and that he could not fly from. The assurance he now had that Blandois, whatever his right name was, was one of the worst of characters, greatly augmented the burden of his anxieties. Though the disappearance should be accounted for to-morrow, the fact that his mother had been in communication with such a man would remain unalterable. That the communication had been of a secret kind, and that she had been submissive to him, and afraid of him, he hoped might be known to no one beyond himself. Yet knowing it, how could he separate it from his old vague fears, and how believe that there was nothing evil in such relations? Her resolution not to enter on the question with him, and his knowledge of her indomitable character, enhanced his sense of helplessness. It was like the oppression of a dream to believe that shame and exposure were impending over her and his father's memory and to be shut out, as by a brazen wall, from the possibility of coming to their aid. The purpose he had brought home to his native country, and had ever since kept in view, was, with her greatest determination, defeated by his mother herself, at the time of all others when he feared that it pressed most. His advice, energy, activity, money, credit, all his resources whatsoever, were all made useless. If she had been possessed of the old fabled influence, and had turned those who looked upon her into stone, she could not have rendered him more completely powerless, so it seemed to him in his distress of mind, than she did, when she turned her unyielding face to his in her gloomy room. But the light of that day's discovery, shining on these considerations, roused him to make a more decided course of action. Confident in the rectitude of his purpose, and impelled by a sense of overhanging danger closing in around, he resolved, if his mother would still admit of no approach, to make a desperate appeal to Affery, if she could be brought to become communicative, and to do what lay in her to break the spell of secrecy that enshrouded the house, he might shake off the paralysis of which every hour that passed over his head made him more acutely sensible. This was the result of his day's anxiety and this was the decision he put in practice when the day closed in. His first disappointment, on arriving at the house, was to find the door open, and Mr. Flintwinch smoking a pipe on the steps. If circumstances had been commonly favourable, 
Mistress Affery would have opened the door to his knock. Circumstances being uncommonly unfavourable, the door stood open, and Mr. Flintwinch was smoking his pipe on the steps. "'Good evening,' said Arthur. "'Good evening,' said Mr. Flintwinch. The smoke came crookedly out of Mr. Flintwinch's mouth, as if it circulated through the whole of his wry figure, and came back by his wry throat, before coming forth to mingle with the smoke from the crooked chimneys and the mists from the crooked river. "'Have you any news?' said Arthur. "'We have no news,' said Jeremiah. "'I mean of the foreign man,' Arthur explained. "'I mean of the foreign man,' said Jeremiah. He looked so grim as he stood askew, with a knot of his cravat under his ear, that the thought passed into Clennam's mind, and not for the first time by many, could Flintwinch, for a purpose of his own, have got rid of Blandois? Could it have been his secret and his safety that were at issue? He was small and bent, and perhaps not actively strong, yet he was as tough as an old yew-tree, and as crusty as an old jackdaw. Such a man, coming behind a much younger and more vigorous man, and having the will to put an end to him, and no relenting, might do it pretty surely in that solitary place at a late hour. While in the morbid condition of his thoughts, these thoughts drifted over the main one that was always in Clennam's mind, Mr. Flintwinch, regarding the opposite house over the gateway, with his neck twisted and one eye shut up, stood smoking with a vicious expression upon him, more as if he were trying to bite off the stem of his pipe than as if he were enjoying it. Yet he was enjoying it in his own way. "'You'll be able to take my likeness the next time you call, Arthur, I should think,' said Mr. Flintwinch dryly, as he stooped to knock the ashes out. Rather conscious and confused, Arthur asked his pardon, if he had stared at him unpolitely. "'But my mind runs so much upon this matter,' he said, "'that I lose myself.' "'Ha! Yet I don't see—' returned Mr. Flintwinch, quite at his leisure. "'Why it should trouble you, Arthur?' "'No?' "'No,' said Mr. Flintwinch, very shortly and decidedly, much as if he were of the canine race, and snapped at Arthur's hand. "'Is it nothing to see those placards about? Is it nothing to me to see my mother's name and residence hawked up and down in such an association?' "'I don't see—' returned Mr. Flintwinch, scraping his horny cheek, that it need signify much to you. But I'll tell you what I do see, Arthur, glancing up at the windows. I see the light of fire and candle in your mother's room. And what has that to do with it? Why, sir, I read by it, said Mr. Flintwinch, screwing himself at him, that, if it's advisable, as the proverb says it is, to let sleeping dogs lie, it's just as advisable, perhaps, to let missing dogs lie. Let em be. They generally turn up soon enough." Mr. Flintwinch turned short around when he had made this remark, and went into the dark hall. Clennam stood there, following him with his eyes, as he dipped for a light in the phosphorus box in the little room at the side, got one after three or four dips, and lighted the dim lamp against the wall. All the while Clennam was pursuing the probabilities, rather as if they were being shown to him by an invisible hand, than as if he himself were conjuring them up, of Mr. Flintwinch's ways and means of doing that darker deed, 
and removing its traces by any of the black avenues of shadow that lay around them. "'Now, sir,' said the testy Jeremiah, "'will it be agreeable to walk upstairs?' "'My mother is alone, I suppose?' "'Not alone,' said Mr. Flintwinch. "'Mr. Casby and his daughter are with her. They came in while I was smoking, and I stayed behind to have my smoke out.' This was the second disappointment. Arthur made no remark upon it, and repaired to his mother's room, where Mr. Casby and Flora had been taking tea, anchovy paste, and hot-buttered toast. The relics of those delicacies were not yet removed, either from the table or from the scorched countenance of Affery, who, with the kitchen toasting-fork still in her hand, looked like a sort of allegorical personage, except that she had a considerable advantage over the general run of such personages in point of significant emblematical purpose. Flora had spread her bonnet and shawl upon the bed, with a care indicative of an intention to stay some time. Mr. Casby, too, was beaming near the hob, with his benevolent knobs shining as if the warm butter of the toast were exuding through the patriarchal skull, and with his face as ruddy as if the colouring matter of the anchovy paste were mantling in the patriarchal visage. Seeing this, as he exchanged the usual salutations, Clennam decided to speak to his mother without postponement. It had long been customary, as she never changed her room, for those who had anything to say to her apart, to wheel her to her desk, where she sat, usually with the back of her chair turned towards the rest of the room, and the person who talked with her seated in a corner, on a stool, which was always set in that place for that purpose, except that it was long since the mother and son had spoken together without the intervention of a third person. It was an ordinary matter, of course, within the experience of visitors, for Mrs. Clennam to be asked, with a word of apology for the interruption, if she could be spoken with on a matter of business, and, on her replying in the affirmative, to be wheeled into the position described. Therefore, when Arthur now made such an apology, and such a request, and moved her to her desk, and seated himself on the stool, Mrs. Finching merely began to talk louder and faster, as a delicate hint that she could overhear nothing, and Mr. Casby stroked his long white locks with sleepy calmness. "'Mother, I have heard something to-day which I feel persuaded you don't know, and which I think you should know, of the antecedents of that man I saw here.' "'I know nothing of the antecedents of the man you saw here, Arthur.' She spoke aloud. He had lowered his own voice, but she rejected that advance towards confidence, as she rejected every other, and spoke in her usual key, and in her usual stern voice. "'I have received it on no circuitous information. It has come to me direct.' She asked him exactly as before, if he were there to tell her what it was. "'I thought it right that you should know it.' "'And what is it?' "'He has been a prisoner in a French jail,' she answered with composure. "'I should think that very likely.' "'But in a jail for criminals, mother, on an accusation of murder.' She started at the word, and her looks expressed her natural horror, yet she still spoke aloud when she demanded, "'Who told you so?' "'A man who was his fellow-prisoner.' "'That man's antecedents, I suppose, were not known to you before he told you?' "'No.' "'Though the man himself was?' "'Yes.' "'My case, and Flintwinch's, in respect of this other man, I dare say the resemblance is not so exact, though, 
as that your informant became known to you through a letter from a correspondent with whom he had deposited money. How does that part of the parallel stand?' Arthur had no choice but to say, as his informant, had not become known to him through the agency of any such credentials, or indeed of any credentials at all. Mrs. Clennam's attentive frown expanded by degrees into a severe look of triumph, and she retorted with emphasis, "'Take care how you judge others, then, I say to you, Arthur, for your good. Take care how you judge.' Her emphasis had been derived from her eyes, quite as much as from the stress she laid upon her words. She continued to look at him, and if, when he entered the house, he had had any latent hope of prevailing in the least with her, she now looked it out of his heart. "'Mother, shall I do nothing to assist you?' "'Nothing.' "'Will you entrust me with no confidence, no charge, no explanation? Will you take no counsel with me? Will you not let me come near you?' "'How can you ask me? You separated yourself from my affairs. It was not my act, it was yours.' How can you consistently ask me such a question? You know that you left me to Flintwinch, and that he occupies your place." Glancing at Jeremiah, Clennam saw in his very gaiters that his attention was closely directed to them, though he stood leaning against the wall, scraping his jaw, and pretended to listen to Flora, as she held forth in a most distracting manner on a chaos of subjects in which Mackerel and Mr. F.'s aunt, in a swing, had become entangled with cockchafers and the wine-trade. "'A prisoner in a French jail, on an accusation of murder,' repeated Mrs. Clennam, steadily going over what her son had said. "'That is all you know of him from the fellow-prisoner?' "'In substance, all.' "'And was the fellow-prisoner his accomplice, and a murderer, too? But, of course, he gives a better account of himself than of his friend, it is needless to ask.' This will supply the rest of them here with something new to talk about. Casby, Arthur tells me— Stay, mother, stay, stay, he interrupted her hastily, for it had not entered his imagination that she would openly proclaim what he had told her. What now? she said with displeasure. What more? I beg you to excuse me, Mr. Casby, and you too, Mrs. Finching, for one other moment with my mother. He had laid his hand upon her chair, or she would otherwise have wheeled it round with the touch of her foot upon the ground. They were still face to face. She looked at him, as he ran over the possibilities of some result he had not intended, and could not foresee, being influenced by Cavalletto's disclosure becoming a matter of notoriety, and hurriedly arrived at the conclusion that it had best not be talked about, though perhaps he was guided by no more distinct reason and that he had taken it for granted that his mother would reserve it to herself and her partner. "'What now?' she said again impatiently. "'What is it?' "'I did not mean, mother, that you should repeat what I have communicated. I think you had better not repeat it.' "'Do you make that a condition with me?' "'Well, yes.' "'Observe, then. It is you who make this a secret,' said she, holding up her hand, "'and not I.' It is you, Arthur, who bring here doubts and suspicions and entreaties for explanations, and it is you, Arthur, who bring secrets here. What is it to me, do you think, where the man has been, or what he has been? What can it be to me? The whole world may know it, if they care to know it. It is nothing to me. Now let me go." He yielded to her imperious but elated look, 
and turned her chair back to the place from which she had wheeled it. In doing so, he saw elation in the face of Mr. Flintwinch, which most assuredly was not inspired by Flora. This turning of his intelligence, and of his whole attempt and design against himself, did even more than his mother's fixedness and firmness to convince him that his efforts with her were idle. Nothing remained but the appeal to his old friend Avery. But even to get the very doubtful and preliminary stage of making the appeal seemed one of the least promising of human undertakings. She was so completely under the thrall of the two clever ones, was so systematically kept in sight by one or other of them, and was so afraid to go about the house besides, that every opportunity of speaking to her alone appeared to be forestalled. Over and above that, Mistress Affery, by some means, it was not very difficult to guess, through the sharp arguments of her liege lord, had acquired such a lively conviction of the hazards of saying anything under any circumstances, that she had remained all this time in a corner, guarding herself from approach with that symbolical instrument of hers, so that when a word or two had been addressed to her by Flora, or even by the bottle-green patriarch himself, she had warded off conversation with the toasting-fork, like a dumb woman. After several abortive attempts to get Affery to look at him, while she cleared the table, and washed the tea-service, Arthur thought of an expedient which Flora might originate, to whom he therefore whispered, "'Could you say you would like to go through the house?' Now, poor Flora, being always in fluctuating expectation of the time when Clennam would renew his boyhood and be madly in love with her again, received the whisper with the utmost delight, not only as rendered precious by its mysterious character, but as preparing the way for a tender interview in which he would declare the state of his affections. She immediately began to work out the hint. "'Ah, dear me, the poor old room!' said Flora, glancing round. "'Looks just as ever, Mrs. Clennam, I'm touched to see, except for being smokier, which was to be expected with time, and which we must all expect and reconcile ourselves to, being whether we like it or not, as I'm sure I've had to do myself, if not exactly smokier, dreadfully stouter, which is the same or worse, to think of the days when Papa used to bring me here, the least of girls, a perfect mass of chilblains, to be stuck upon a chair with my feet on the rails, and stare at Arthur, or pray, excuse me, Mr. Clennam, the least of boys, and the frightfullest of frills and jackets, ere yet, Mr. Pfeff, appeared a misty shadow on the horizon, paying attentions like the well-known spectre of some place in Germany, beginning with a B, is a moral lesson inculcating that all the paths in life are similar to the paths down in the north of England, where they get the coals and make the iron and things gaveled with ashes. Having paid the tribute of a sigh to the instability of human existence, Flora hurried on with her purpose. "'Not that at any time,' she proceeded, "'its worst enemy could have said it was a cheerful house, for that it was never made to be, but always highly impressive. Fond memory recalls an occasion in youth, ere yet the judgment was mature when Arthur—confirmed <laughs> habit, Mr. Clennam—took me down into an unused kitchen eminent for mouldiness, and proposed to secret me there for life, and feed me on what he could hide from his meals when he was not at home for the holidays, and on dry bread and disgrace, which at that halcyon period to frequently occurred. Would it be inconvenient, or asking too much to beg to be permitted, to revive those scenes, and walk through the house?' Clennam who responded with a constrained grace to Mrs. Finching's good nature in being there at all, though her visit, before Arthur's unexpected arrival, was undoubtedly an act of pure good nature, and no self-gratification, intimated that all the house was open to her. Flora rose, and looked to Arthur for his escort. "'Certainly,' said he aloud. "'And Affery will light us, I dare say?' Affery was excusing herself with— "'Don't ask nothing of me, Arthur,' when Mr. Flintwinch stopped her with, "'Why not?' 
Avery, what's the matter with your woman? Why not, Jade? Thus expostulated with, she came unwillingly out of her corner, resigned the toasting-fork into one of her husband's hands, and took the candlestick he offered from the other. "'Go before, you fool,' said Jeremiah. "'Are you going up or down, Mrs. Finching?' Flora answered, "'Down.' "'Then go before and down, you Affery,' said Jeremiah, "'and do it properly, or I'll come rolling down the banisters and tumbling over you.' Affery headed the exploring party. Jeremiah closed it. He had no intention of leaving them. Clennam, looking back and seeing him following three stairs behind in the coolest and most methodical manner, exclaimed in a low voice, "'Is there no getting rid of him?' Flora reassured his mind by replying promptly, "'Why, though not exactly proper, Arthur, and a thing I couldn't think of before, a younger man or a stranger, still I don't mind him, if you so particularly wish it, and provided you'll have the goodness not to take me too tight.' Wanting the heart to explain that this was not at all what he meant, Arthur extended his supporting arm round Flora's figure. "'Oh, my goodness me!' said she. "'You are very obedient indeed, really, and it's extremely honourable and gentleman in you, I am sure, but still at the same time, if you would like to be a little tighter than that, I shouldn't consider it intruding.' In this preposterous attitude, unspeakably at variance with his anxious mind, Clennam descended to the basement of the house, finding that wherever it became darker than elsewhere, Flora became heavier, and that when the house was lightest, she was too. Returning from the dismal kitchen regions, which were as dreary as they could be, Mistress Affery passed with the light into his father's old room, and then into the old dining-room, always passing on before like a phantom that was not to be overtaken, and neither turning nor answering when he whispered, "'Affery, I want to speak to you.' In the dining-room a sentimental desire came over Flora to look into the dragon-closet which had so often swallowed Arthur in the days of his boyhood, not improbably because, as a very dark closet, it was a likely place to be heavy in. Arthur, fast subsiding into despair, had opened it, when a knock was heard at the outer door. Mistress Affery, with a suppressed cry, threw her apron over her head. "'What? You want another doze?' said Mr. Flintwinch. "'You shall have it, my woman. You shall have a good one. Oh, you shall have a sneezer. You shall have a teaser.' "'In the meantime, is anybody going to the door?' said Arthur. "'In the meantime, I am going to the door, sir,' returned the old man so savagely as to render it clear that in a choice of difficulties he felt he must go, though he would have preferred not to go. "'Stay here the while all. Affery, my woman, move an inch, or speak a word in your foolishness, and I'll treble your doze.' The moment he was gone, Arthur released Mrs. Finching, with some difficulty, by reason of that lady misunderstanding his intentions, and making arrangements with a view to tightening instead of slackening. "'Affery, speak to me now.' "'Don't touch me, Arthur,' she cried, shrinking from him. "'Don't come near me. He'll see you, Jeremiah will. Don't.' "'He can't see me,' returned Arthur, suiting the action to the word, "'if I blow the candle out.' "'He'll hear you.' cried Affery. "'He can't hear me,' returned Arthur, suiting the action to the words again. "'If I draw you back into this closet, and speak here, why do you hide your face? 
because I'm afraid of seeing something.' "'You can't be afraid of seeing anything in this darkness, Avery.' "'Yes, I am. Much more than if it was light.' "'Why are you afraid?' "'Because the house is full of mysteries and secrets.' because it's full of whisperings and counsellings because it's full of noises there ever was such a house for noises i shall die of em if jeremiah don't strangle me first as i expect he will i have never heard any noises here worth speaking of ah but you would though if you lived in the house and was obliged to go about it as i am said Affery. and you'd feel that they were so well worth speaking of that you feel he was nigh bursting through not being allowed to speak of him here's jeremiah you'll get me killed my good Afry, i solemnly declare to you that i can see the light of the open door on the pavement of the hall and so could you if you would uncover your face and look i durstn't do it said Afry. i durstn't never arthur i'm always blindfolded when jeremiah ain't a looking and sometimes even when he is he cannot shut the door without my seeing him said arthur you are as safe with me as if he was fifty miles away i wish he was cried affery affery i want to know what is amiss here i want some light thrown on the secrets of this house i tell you arthur she interrupted noises is the secrets rustlings and stealings about tremblings treads overhead and treads underneath but those are not all the secrets i don't know said affery don't ask me no more your old sweetheart ain't far off and she's a blabber his old sweetheart being in fact so near at hand that she was then reclining against him in a flutter a very substantial angle of forty-five degrees, here interposed to assure Mistress Affery, with greater earnestness than directness of asseveration, that what she heard should go no further, but should be kept inviolate. "'If on no other account, on Arthur's, sensible of intruding and being too familiar, <laughs> Doyce and Clements.' "'I make an imploring appeal to you, Affery, to you, one of the few agreeable early remembrances I have, for my mother's sake.' for your husband's sake, for my own, for all our sakes. I am sure you can tell me something connected with the coming here of this man, if you will. "'Why, then, I tell you, Arthur,' returned Affery, "'Jeremiah's coming.' "'No, indeed he is not. The door is open, and he is standing outside, talking.' "'I tell you, then,' said Affery, after listening, "'that the first time he ever come, he heard the noises his own self what's that he said to me i don't know what it is i says to him catching hold of him but i've heard it over and over again while i says it he stands a-looking at me all of a shake he do has he been here often only that night and the last night what did you see of him on the last night after i was gone them two clever ones had him all alone to themselves jeremiah come a-dancing at me sideways after i'd let you out he always comes a-dancing at me sideways when he's going to hurt me and he said to me 
"'Now, Affery,' he said, "'I'm a-coming behind you, my woman, and a-going to run you up.' So he took and squeezed the back of my neck in his hand, till it made me open my mouth, and then he pushed me before him to bed, squeezing all the way. That's what he calls running me up, he do. Oh, he's a wicked one. And did you hear or see no more, Affery? Don't I tell you I was sent to bed, Arthur? Oh, here he is. I assure you he is still at the door. And those whisperings and counsellings, Affery, that you have spoken of, what are they? How should I know? Don't ask me nothing about them, Arthur. Get away. But, my dear Affery, unless I can gain some insight into these hidden things, in spite of your husband and in spite of my mother, ruin will come of it. Don't ask me nothing, repeated Affery. I've been in a dream for ever so long. Go away. Go away. "'You said that before,' returned Arthur. "'You used the same expression that night at the door, "'when I asked you what was going on here. "'What do you mean by being in a dream?' "'I am going to tell you. "'Get away. "'I shouldn't tell you if you was by yourself, "'much less with your old sweetheart here.' "'It was equally vain for Arthur to entreat, "'and for Flora to protest. "'Affery, who had been trembling and struggling the whole time, turned a deaf ear to all adjuration, and was bent on forcing herself out of the closet. "'I'd sooner scream to Jeremiah, and say another word. I'll call out to him, Arthur, if you don't give over speaking to me. Now, here's the very last word I'll say, afore I call to him. If ever you begin to get the better of them two clever ones, your own self, you ought to it, as I told you when you first come home.' for you haven't been a-living here long years to be made afeard of your life as i have then do you get the better of em afore my face and then do you say to me affery tell your dreams maybe then i'll tell em the shutting of the door stopped arthur from replying they glided into the places where jeremiah had left them and clennam stepping forward as that old gentleman returned informed him that he had accidentally extinguished the candle. Mr. Flintwinch looked on as he relighted it at the lamp in the hall, and preserved a profound taciturnity respecting the person who had been holding him in conversation. Perhaps his irascibility demanded compensation for some tediousness that the visitor had expended on him. However that was, he took such umbrage at seeing his wife with her apron over her head, that he charged at her, and taking her veiled nose between his thumb and finger, appeared to throw the whole screw-power of his person into the ring he gave it. Flora, now permanently heavy, did not release Arthur from the survey of the house, until it had extended even to his old garret bedchamber. His thoughts were otherwise occupied than with the tour of inspection, yet he took particular notice at the time, as he afterwards had occasion to remember, of the airlessness and closeness of the house, that they left the track of their footsteps in the dust on the upper floors, and that there was a resistance to the opening of one room-door, which occasioned Affery to cry out that somebody was hiding inside, and to continue to believe so, though somebody was sought and not discovered. When they at last returned to his mother's room, they found her shading her face with her muffled hand, and talking in a low voice to the patriarch as he stood before the fire, whose blue eyes, polished head, and silken locks 
turning towards them as they came in, imparted an inestimable value and inexhaustible love of his species to his remark. "'So you have been seeing the premises, seeing the premises, premises, seeing the premises.' It was not in itself a jewel of benevolence or wisdom, yet he made it an exemplar of both, that one would have liked to have a copy of. End of Book Two, Chapter Twenty Three Book Two, Chapter Twenty Four of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Twenty Four, The Evening of a Long Day. That illustrious man and great national ornament, Mr. Myrtle, continued his shining course. It began to be widely understood that one who had done society the admirable service of making so much money out of it could not be suffered to remain a commoner. A baronetcy was spoken of with confidence. A peerage was frequently mentioned. Rumour had it that Mr. Myrtle had set his golden face against a baronetcy, that he had plainly intimated to Lord Decimus that a baronetcy was not enough for him, that he had said, No, a peerage or plain Myrtle. This was reported to have plunged Lord Decimus, as nigh to his noble chin, in a slough of doubts, as so lofty a person could be sunk. For the barnacles, as a group of themselves in creation, had an idea that such distinctions belonged to them, and that when a soldier, sailor, or lawyer became ennobled, they let him in, as it were, by an act of condescension, at the family door, and immediately shut it again. Not only, said rumour, had the troubled Decimus his own hereditary part in this impression, but he also knew of several barnacle claims already on the file, which came into collision with that of the master-spirit. Right or wrong, rumour was very busy, and Lord Decimus, while he was, or was supposed to be, in stately excogitation of the difficulty, lent her some countenance, by taking, on several public occasions, one of those elephantine trots of his, through a jungle of overgrown sentences, waving Mr. Myrtle about on his trunk, as gigantic enterprise, the wealth of England, elasticity, credit, capital, prosperity, and all manner of blessings. So quietly did the mowing of the old scythe go on, that fully three months had passed unnoticed, since the two English brothers had been laid in one tomb in the stranger's cemetery at Rome. Mr. and Mrs. Sparkler were established in their own house, a little mansion, rather of the tight barnacle class, quite a triumph of inconvenience, with a perpetual smell in it of the day before yesterday's soup and coach-horses, but extremely dear, as being exactly in the centre of the habitable globe. In this enviable abode, and envied it really was by many people, Mrs. Sparkler had intended to proceed at once to the demolition of the bosom, when active hostilities had been suspended by the arrival of the courier with his tidings of death. Mrs. Sparkler, who was not unfeeling, had received them with a violent burst of grief, which had lasted twelve hours, after which she had arisen to see about her mourning, and to take every precaution that could ensure its being as becoming as Mrs. Myrtle's. A gloom was then cast over more than one distinguished family, 
according to the politest sources of intelligence, and the courier went back again. Mr. and Mrs. Sparkler had been dining alone, with their gloom cast over them, and Mrs. Sparkler reclined on a drawing-room sofa. It was a hot summer Sunday's evening. The residence in the centre of the habitable globe, at all times stuffed and close, as if it had an incurable cold in its head, was that evening particularly stifling. The bells of the churches had done their worst, in the way of clanging among the unmelodious echoes of the streets, and the lighted windows of the churches had ceased to be yellow in the grey dusk, and had died out opaque black. Mrs. Sparkler, lying on her sofa, looking through an open window, at the opposite side of a narrow street, over boxes of mignonette and flowers, was tired of the view. Mrs. Sparkler, looking at another window where her husband stood in the balcony, was tired of that view. Mrs. Sparkler, looking at herself in her mourning, was even tired of that view, though naturally not so tired of that as of the other two. "'It's like lying in a well,' said Mrs. Sparkler, changing her position fretfully. "'Dear Edmund, if you've anything to say, why don't you say it?' Mr. Sparkler might have replied with ingenuousness, "'My life, I have nothing to say.' but as the repartee did not occur to him he contented himself with coming in from the balcony and standing at the side of his wife's couch good gracious edmund said mrs sparkler more fretfully still you are absolutely putting mignonette up your nose pray don't mr sparkler in absence of mind perhaps in a more literal absence of mind than is usually understood by the phrase had smelt so hard at a sprig in his hand as to be on the verge of the offence in question he smiled, said, "'I ask your pardon, my dear,' and threw it out of the window. "'You make my headache by remaining in that position, Edmund,' said Mrs. Sparkler, raising her eyes to him after another minute. "'You look so aggravatingly large by this light. Do sit down.' "'Certainly, my dear,' said Mr. Sparkler, and took a chair on the same spot. "'If I didn't know that the longest day was past,' said Fanny, yawning in a dreary manner, I should have felt certain this was the longest day. I never did experience such a day. "'Is that your fan, my love?' asked Mr. Sparkler, picking up one and presenting it. "'Edmund,' returned his wife, more wearily yet, "'don't ask weak questions. I entreat you not. Whose can it be but mine?' "'Yes, I thought it was yours,' said Mr. Sparkler. "'Then you shouldn't ask,' retorted Fanny. After a little while, she turned on her sofa and exclaimed, "'Dear me! Dear me! There never was such a long day as this!' After another little while, she got up slowly, walked about, and came back again. "'My dear,' said Mr. Sparkler, flashing with an original conception, "'I think you must have got the fidgets.' "'Oh, fidgets?' repeated Mrs. Sparkler. "'Don't!' "'My adorable girl,' urged Mr. Sparkler, "'try your aromatic vinegar. I've often seen my mother try it, and it seemingly refreshed her, and she is, as I believe you are aware, a remarkably fine woman, with no non—good gracious!' exclaimed Fanny, starting up again. "'It's beyond all patience. This is the most wearisome day that ever did dawn upon the world, I'm certain.' Mr. Sparkler looked meekly after her, as she lounged about the room, and he appeared to be a little frightened. When she had tossed a few trifles about, and had looked down into the darkening street, out of all the three windows, 
she returned to her sofa, and threw herself among its pillows. "'Now, Edmund, come here. Come a little nearer, because I want to be able to touch you with my fan, that I may impress you very much with what I am going to say. That'll do, quite close enough. Oh, you do look so big!' Mr. Sparkler apologised for the circumstance, pleaded that he couldn't help it, and said that our fellows, without more particularly indicating whose fellows, used to call him by the name of Quinbus Flestron, Junior, or the Young Man Mountain. "'You ought to have told me so before,' Fanny complained. "'My dear,' returned Mr. Sparkler, rather gratified, "'I didn't know it would interest you, or I would have made a point of telling you.' "'There! For goodness sake, don't talk,' said Fanny. "'I want to talk myself, Edmund. We must not be alone any more.' I must take such precautions as will prevent my being ever again reduced to the state of dreadful depression in which I am this evening. "'My dear,' answered Mr. Sparkler, "'being, as you are well known, to be a remarkably fine woman with no—oh, good gracious!' cried Fanny. Mr. Sparkler was so discomposed by the energy of this exclamation, accompanied with a flouncing up from the sofa and a flouncing down again, that a minute or two elapsed before he felt himself equal to saying an explanation, "'I mean, my dear, that everybody knows you are calculated to shine in society.' "'Calculated to shine in society,' retorted Fanny, with great irritability. "'Yes, indeed. And then what happens?' I no sooner recover, in a visiting point of view, the shock of poor dear papa's death and my poor uncle's, though I do not disguise from myself that the last was a happy release, for, if you are not presentable, you had much better die. "'You are not referring to me, my love, I hope,' Mr. Sparkler humbly interrupted. "'Edmund, Edmund, you would wear out a saint. Am I not expressly speaking of my poor uncle?' "'You looked with so much expression at myself, my dear girl,' said Mr. Sparkler, "'that I felt a little uncomfortable. Thank you, my love.' "'Now you have put me out,' observed Fanny, with a resigned toss of her fan, "'and I'd better go to bed.' "'Don't do that, my love,' urged Mr. Sparkler. "'Take time.' Fanny took a good deal of time, lying back with her eyes shut, and her eyebrows raised, with a hopeless expression, as if she had utterly given up all terrestrial affairs. At length, without the slightest notice, she opened her eyes again, and recommenced in a short, sharp manner. "'What happens then?' I ask. "'What happens? Why, I find myself, at the very period when I might shine most in society, and should most like, for very momentous reasons, to shine in society, I find myself in a situation which to a certain extent disqualifies me for going into society. It's too bad, really." "'My dear,' said Mr. Sparkler, "'I don't think it need keep you at home.' "'Edmund, you ridiculous creature,' returned Fanny, with great indignation, "'do you suppose that a woman in the bloom of youth, and not wholly devoid of personal attractions, can put herself at such a time, in competition, as to figure with a woman in every other way her inferior. If you do suppose such a thing, your folly is boundless." Mr. Sparkler submitted that he had thought it might be got over. "'Got over?' repeated Fanny, with immeasurable scorn. "'For a time,' Mr. Sparkler submitted. 
honouring the last feeble suggestion with no notice, Mrs. Sparkler declared with bitterness that it really was too bad, and that positively it was enough to make one wish one was dead. "'However,' she said, when she had in some measure recovered from her sense of personal ill-usage, "'provoking as it is, and cruel as it seems, I suppose it must be submitted to. "'Especially as it was to be expected,' said Mr. Sparkler. "'Edmund,' returned his wife, "'if you have nothing more becoming to do than to attempt to insult the woman who has honoured you with her hand, when she finds herself in adversity, I think you had better go to bed.' Mr. Sparkler was much afflicted by the charge, and offered a most tender and earnest apology. His apology was accepted but Mrs. Sparkler requested him to go round to the other side of the sofa, and sit in the window-curtain, to tone himself down. "'Now, Edmund,' she said, stretching out her fan, and touching him with it at arm's length, "'what I was going to say to you, when you began, as usual, to prose and worry, is that I shall guard against our being alone any more, and that when circumstances prevent my going out to my own satisfaction, I must arrange to have some people, or other, always here, for I really cannot, and will not, have another such day as this has been." Mr. Sparkler's sentiments as to the plan were, in brief, that it had no nonsense about it, he added. "'And besides, you know, it's uh, likely that you'll soon have your sister.' "'Dearest Amy, yes,' cried Mrs. Sparkler, with a sigh of affection. "'Darling little thing!' Not, however, that Amy would do here alone." Mr. Sparkler was going to say, no, interrogatively, but he saw his danger, and said it assentingly, "'No, uh, oh, dear, no, she wouldn't do here alone.' "'No, Edmund, for not only are the virtues of the precious child of that still character that they require a contrast, require life and movement around them, to bring them out in their right colours, and make one love them of all things but she will require to be roused, on more accounts than one." "'That's it,' said Mr. Sparkler, "'roused. Pray don't, Edmund. Your habit of interrupting, without having the least thing in the world to say, distracts me. You must be broken of it. Speaking of Amy, my poor little pet was devotedly attached to poor papa, and no doubt will have lamented his loss exceedingly, and grieved very much. I've done so myself. I have felt it dreadfully but Amy will no doubt have felt it even more, from having been on the spot the whole time, and having been with poor dear papa at the last, which I unhappily was not." Here Fanny stopped to weep, and to say, "'Dear, dear beloved papa, how truly gentlemanly he was! What a contrast to poor uncle!' "'From the effects of that trying time,' she pursued, "'my good little mouse will have to be roused also from the effects of this long attendance upon edward in his illness an attendance which is not yet over which may even go on for some time longer and which in the meanwhile unsettles us all by keeping poor dear papa's affairs from being wound up fortunately however the papers with his agents here being all sealed up and locked up as he left them when he providentially came to england the affairs are in that state of order that they can wait until my brother edward recovers his health in sicily sufficiently to come over and administer or execute or whatever it may be that will have to be done he couldn't have a better nurse to bring him round mr sparkler made bold to opine 
for a wonder i can agree with you returned his wife languidly turning her eyelids a little in his direction she held forth in general as if to the drawing-room furniture and can adopt your words he couldn't have a better nurse to bring him round there are times when my dear child is a little wearing to an active mind but as a nurse she is perfection best of amy's mr sparkler growing rash on his late success observed that edward had begod a long bout of it my dear girl if bout edmund returned mrs sparkler is the slang term for indisposition he has if it is not i am unable to give an opinion on the barbarous language you address to edward's sister that he contracted malaria fever somewhere either by travelling day and night to rome where after all he arrived too late to see poor dear papa before his death or under some other unwholesome circumstances is indubitable if that is what you mean likewise that his extremely careless life has made him a very bad subject for it indeed mr sparkler considered it a parallel case to that of some of our fellows in the west indies with yellow jack mrs sparkler closed her eyes again and refused to have any consciousness of our fellows of the west indies or of yellow jack so amy she pursued when she reopened her eyelids will require to be roused from the effects of many tedious and anxious weeks and lastly she will require to be roused from a low tendency which i know very well to be at the bottom of her heart don't ask me what it is edmund because i must decline to tell you i'm not going to my dear said mr sparkler i shall thus have much improvement to effect in my sweet child mrs sparkler continued and cannot have her near me too soon amiable and dear little two-shoes as to the settlement of poor papa's affairs my interest in that is not very selfish papa behaved very generously to me when i was married and i have little or nothing to expect provided he had made no will that can come into force leaving a legacy to mrs general i am contented dear papa dear papa she wept again but mrs general was the best of restoratives the name soon stimulated her to dry her eyes and say it is a highly encouraging circumstance in edward's illness i am thankful to think and gives one the greatest confidence in his sense not being impaired or his proper spirit weakened down to the time of poor dear papa's death at all events that he paid off mrs general instantly and sent her out of the house i applaud him for it i could forgive him a great deal for doing with such promptitude so exactly what i would have done myself mrs sparkler was in the full glow of her gratification when a double knock was heard at the door a very odd knock low as if to avoid making a noise and attracting attention long as if the person knocking were preoccupied in mind and forgot to leave off hello said mr sparkler who's this not amy and edward without notice and without a carriage said mrs sparkler look out the room was dark but the street was lighter because of its lamps mr sparkler's head peeping over the balcony looked so very bulky and heavy that it seemed on the point of overbalancing him and flattening the unknown below it's one fellow said mr sparkler i can't see who uh, stop though on this second thought he went out into the balcony again and had another look he came back as the door was opened and announced that he believed he had identified his governor's tile he was not mistaken for his governor with his tile in his hand 
was introduced immediately afterwards. "'Candles,' said Mrs. Sparkler, with a word of excuse for the darkness. "'It's light enough for me,' said Mr. Myrtle. When the candles were brought in, Mr. Myrtle was discovered standing behind the door, picking his lips. "'I thought I'd give you a call,' he said. "'I am rather particularly occupied just now, and, uh, as I happen to be out for a stroll, I thought I'd give you a call.' As he was in dinner-dress, Fanny asked him where he had been dining. "'Well,' said Mr. Myrtle, "'I haven't been dining anywhere, particularly.' "'Of course you have dined,' said Fanny. "'Why, no, I haven't exactly dined,' said Mr. Myrtle. He had passed his hand over his yellow forehead, and considered, as if he were not sure about it, something to eat was proposed. "'No, thank you,' said Mr. Myrtle. "'I don't feel inclined for it. I was to have dined out along with Mrs. Myrtle, but as I didn't feel inclined for dinner, I let Mrs. Myrtle go by herself, just as we were getting into the carriage, and thought I'd take a stroll instead.' "'Would he have tea or coffee?' "'No, thank you,' said Mr. Myrtle. "'I looked in at the club, and got a bottle of wine.' At this period of his visit, Mr. Myrtle took the chair which Edmund Sparkler had offered him, and which he had hitherto been pushing slowly about before him, like a dull man with a pair of skates on for the first time, who could not make up his mind to start. He now put his hat upon another chair beside him, and looking down into it, as if it were some twenty feet deep, said again, "'You see, I thought I'd give you a call.' "'Flattering to us,' said Fanny, "'for you are not a calling man.' "'No, no,' returned Mr. Myrtle, who was by this time taking himself into custody under both coat-sleeves. "'No, I am not a calling man.' "'You have too much to do for that,' said Fanny. "'Having so much to do, Mr. Myrtle, loss of appetite is a serious thing with you, and you must have it seen to.' "'You must not be ill.' "'Oh, I am very well,' replied Mr. Myrtle, after deliberating about it. "'I am as well as I usually am. I am well enough. I am as well as I want to be.' The mastermind of the age, true to its characteristic of being at all times a mind that had as little as possible to say for itself, and great difficulty in saying it, became mute again. Mrs. Sparkler began to wonder how long the mastermind meant to stay. "'I was speaking of poor papa when you came in, sir.' "'Aye, quite a coincidence,' said Mr. Myrtle. Fanny did not see that, but felt it incumbent on her to continue talking. "'I was saying,' she pursued, "'that my brother's illness has occasioned a delay in examining and arranging papa's property.' "'Yes,' said Mr. Myrtle, "'yes, there has been a delay.' "'Not that it is of consequence.' said Fanny. Not, assented Mr. Myrtle, after having examined the cornice of all that part of the room which was within his range, not that it is of any consequence. My only anxiety is, said Fanny, that Mrs. General should not get anything. She won't get anything, said Mr. Myrtle. Fanny was delighted to hear him express the opinion. Mr. Myrtle, after taking another gaze into the depths of his hat, as if he thought he saw something at the bottom, rubbed his hair, and slowly appended to his last remark the confirmatory words, "'Oh, dear, no! No! Not she! Not likely!' As the topic seemed exhausted, and Mr. Myrtle too, Fanny inquired if he were going to take up Mrs. Myrtle and the carriage in his way home. "'No,' 
he answered, "'I shall go by the shortest way, and leave Mrs. Myrtle to—' Here he looked all over the palms of both of his hands, as if he were telling his own fortune. "'To take care of herself. I dare say she'll manage to do it.' "'Probably,' said Fanny. There was then a long silence, during which Mrs. Sparkler, lying back on her sofa again, shut her eyes and raised her eyebrows in her former retirement from mundane affairs. "'But, however,' said Mr. Myrtle, "'I am equally detaining you and myself. I thought I'd give you a call, you know.' "'Charmed, I'm sure,' said Fanny. "'So I am off,' added Mr. Myrtle, getting up. "'Could you lend me a penknife?' It was an odd thing, Fanny smilingly observed, for her who could seldom prevail upon herself even to write a letter, to lend to a man of such vast business as Mr. Myrtle. "'Isn't it?' Mr. Myrtle acquiesced. "'But I want one, and I know you have got several little wedding keepsakes about, with scissors and tweezers and such things in them. You shall have it back to-morrow.' "'Edmund,' said Mrs. Sparkler, "'open. Now very carefully, I beg and beseech, for you are so very awkward, the mother of pearl box on my little table there, and give Mr. Myrtle the mother of pearl penknife. Thank you, said Mr. Myrtle. But if you have got one with a darker handle, I think I should prefer one with a darker handle. A tortoise shell. Thank you, said Mr. Myrtle. Yes, I think I should prefer tortoise shell. Edmund accordingly received instructions to open the tortoise shell box and give Mr. Myrtle the tortoise shell knife. On his doing so, his wife said to the master-spirit graciously, "'I will forgive you if you ink it.' "'I'll undertake not to ink it,' said Mr. Myrtle. The illustrious visitor then put out his coat-cuff, and for a moment entombed Mrs. Sparkler's hand, wrist, bracelet, and all, where his own hand had shrunk to, was not made manifest, but it was as remote from Mrs. Sparkler's sense of touch as if he had been a highly meritorious Chelsea veteran or Greenwich pensioner. Thoroughly convinced, as he went out of the room, that it was the longest day that ever did come to an end at last, and that there never was a woman, not wholly devoid of personal attractions, so worn out by idiotic and lumpish people, Fanny passed into the balcony for a breath of air. Waters of vexation filled her eyes, and they had the effect of making the famous Mr. Myrtle, in going down the street, appear to leap and waltz, and gyrate, as if he were possessed of several devils. End of Book Two Chapter Twenty Four Book Two Chapter Twenty Five of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens Book Two Riches Chapter Twenty Five The Chief Butler Resigns the Seals of Office The dinner party was at the Great Physician's. Bar was there, and in full force. Ferdinand Barnacle was there, and in his most engaging state. Few ways of life were hidden from physician and he was oftener in its darkest places than even bishop. There were brilliant ladies about London, who perfectly doted on him, my dear, as the most charming creature, and the most delightful person, who would have been shocked to find themselves so close to him, if they could have known on what sights those thoughtful eyes of his had rested within an hour or two, 
and near to whose beds, and under what roofs, his composed figure had stood. But physician was a composed man, who performed neither on his own trumpet, nor on the trumpets of other people. Many wonderful things did he see and hear, and much irreconcilable moral contradiction did he pass his life among. Yet his equality of compassion was no more disturbed than the divine masters of all healing was. He went, like the rain, among the just and unjust, doing all the good he could, and neither proclaiming it in the synagogues nor at the corner of streets. As no man of large experience of humanity, however quietly carried it may be, can fail to be invested with an interest peculiar to the possession of such knowledge, physician was an attractive man. Even the daintier gentlemen and ladies, who had no idea of his secret, and who would have been startled out of more wits than they had, by the monstrous impropriety of his proposing to them, "'Come and see what I see,' confessed his attraction. Where he was, something real was, and half a grain of reality, like the smallest portion of some other scarce natural productions, will flavour an enormous quantity of diluent. It came to pass, therefore, that physicians' little dinners always presented people in their least conventional lights. The guests said to themselves, whether they were conscious of it or no, here is a man who really has an acquaintance with us as we are, who is admitted to some of us every day with our wigs and paint off, who hears the wanderings of our minds, and sees the undisguised expression of our faces when both are past our control. We may as well make an approach to reality with him, for the man has got the better of us, and is too strong for us. Therefore physicians' guests came out so surprisingly at his round table, that they were almost natural. Barr's knowledge of that agglomeration of jurymen, which is called humanity, was as sharp as a razor. Yet a razor is not a generally convenient instrument, and physicians' plain bright scalpel, though far less keen, was adaptable to far wider purposes. Barr knew all about the gullibility and knavery of people but physician could have given him a better insight into their tendernesses and affections, in one week of his rounds, than Westminster Hall and all the circuits put together in threescore years and ten. Barr always had a suspicion of this, and perhaps was glad to encourage it, for if the world were really a great law-court, one would think that the last day of term could not too soon arrive. And so he liked and respected physician quite as much as any other kind of man did. Mr. Merdle's default left a Banco's chair at the table. But, if he had been there, he would have merely made the difference of Banco in it, and consequently he was no loss. Barr, who picked up all sorts of odds and ends about Westminster Hall, much as the raven would have done if he had passed as much of his time there, had been picking up a great many straws lately, and tossing them about, to try which way the Merdle wind blew. He now had a little talk on the subject with Mrs. Merdle herself, sidling up to that lady, of course, with his double eyeglass and his jury droop. "'A certain bird,' said Barr, and he looked as if it could have been no other bird than a magpie, "'has been whispering among us lawyers lately that there is to be an addition to the titled personages of this realm.' "'Really?' said Mrs. Merdle. "'Yes,' said Barr. "'Has not the bird been whispering in very different ears from ours, in lovely ears?' He looked expressively at Mrs. Merdle's nearest earring. "'Do you mean mine?' 
asked Mrs. Merdle. "'When I say lovely,' said Bar, "'I always mean you.' "'You never mean anything, I think,' returned Mrs. Merdle, not displeased. "'Oh, cruelly unjust,' said Bar. "'But the bird?' "'I am the last person in the world to hear news,' observed Mrs. Merdle, carelessly arranging her stronghold. "'Who is it?' "'What an admirable witness you would make,' said Bar. "'No jury, unless we could empanel one of blind men, could resist you, if you were ever so bad a one. But you would be such a good one.' "'Why, you ridiculous man!' asked Mrs. Merdle, laughing. Bar waved his double eyeglass three or four times between himself and the bosom, as a rallying answer, and inquired in his most insinuating accents— "'What am I to call the most elegant, accomplished, and charming of women? A few weeks, or it may be a few days, hence?' "'Didn't your bird tell you what to call her?' answered Mrs. Merdle. "'Do ask it to-morrow, and tell me the next time you see me what it says.' This led to further passages of similar pleasantry between the two, but Bar, with all his sharpness, got nothing out of them. Physician, on the other hand, taking Mrs. Merdle down to her carriage, and attending on her as she put on her cloak, inquired into the symptoms with his usual calm directness. "'May I ask,' he said, "'is this true about Merdle?' "'My dear doctor,' she returned, "'you ask me the very question that I was half disposed to ask you.' "'To ask me? Why me?' "'Upon my honour, I think Mr. Merdle reposes greater confidence in you than in any one. "'On the contrary, he tells me absolutely nothing, even professionally. "'You have heard the talk, of course.' "'Of course I have. But you know what Mr. Merdle is. "'You know how taciturn and reserved he is. "'I assure you I have no idea what foundation for it there may be. "'I should like it to be true.' "'Why should I deny that to you? "'You would know better if I did.' "'Just so,' said the physician. "'But whether it is all true, or partly true, or entirely false, "'I am wholly unable to say. "'It is a most provoking situation, a most absurd situation. "'But you know, Mr. Merdle, and are not surprised.' "'Physician was not surprised, handed her into her carriage, and bade her good-night.' He stood for a moment at his own hall-door, looking sedately at the elegant equipage as it rattled away. On his return upstairs, the rest of the guests soon dispersed, and he was left alone. Being a great reader of all kinds of literature, and never at all apologetic for that weakness, he sat down comfortably to read. The clock upon his study-table pointed to a few minutes short of twelve, when his attention was called to it by a ringing at the door-bell. A man of plain habits, he had sent his servants to bed, and must needs go down to open the door. He went down, and there found a man without hat or coat, whose shirt-sleeves were rolled up tight to his shoulders. For a moment he thought the man had been fighting, the rather as he was much agitated and out of breath. A second look, however, showed him that the man was particularly clean, and not otherwise discomposed as to his dress than as it answered this description. "'I come from the warm bath, sir, round the neighbouring street.' "'And what is the matter at the warm baths?' "'Would you please to come directly, sir? "'We found that 
lying on the table. He put into the physician's hand a scrap of paper. Physician looked at it, and read his own name and address written in pencil. Nothing more. He looked closer at the writing, looked at the man, took his hat from its peg, put the key of his door in his pocket, and they hurried away together. When they came to the warm baths, all the other people belonging to that establishment were looking out for them at the door, and running up and down the passages. "'Request everybody else to keep back, if you please,' said the physician, aloud to the master, "'and do you take me straight to the place, my friend?' to the messenger. The messenger hurried before him, along a grove of little rooms, and turning into one at the end of the grove, looked round the door. Physician was close upon him, and looked round the door too. There was a bath in that corner, from which the water had been hastily drained off. Lying in it, as in a grave or sarcophagus, with a hurried drapery of sheet and blanket sewn across it, was the body of a heavily made man, with an obtuse head, and coarse, mean, common features. A skylight had been opened to release the steam with which the room had been filled, but it hung, condensed into water-drops, heavily upon the walls, and heavily upon the face and figure in the bath. The room was still hot, and the marble of the bath still warm, but the face and figure were clammy to the touch. The white marble at the bottom of the bath was veined with a dreadful red. On the ledge at the side were an empty laudanum bottle, and a tortoiseshell-handled penknife, soiled, but not with ink. Separation of jugular vein, death rapid, been dead at least half an hour. This echo of the physician's words ran through the passages in little rooms, and through the house, while he was yet straightening himself from having bent down to reach the bottom of the bath, and while he was yet dabbling his hands in water, redly veining it as the marble was veined, before it mingled into one tint. He turned his eyes to the dress upon the sofa, and to the watch, money, and pocket-book on the table. A folded note, half buckled up in the pocket-book, and half protruding from it, caught his observant glance. He looked at it, touched it, pulled it a little further out from among the leaves, said quietly, "'This is addressed to me,' and opened and read it. There were no directions for him to give. The people of the house knew what to do. The proper authorities were soon brought, and they took an equable, business-like possession of the deceased, and of what had been his property, with no greater disturbance of manner or countenance than usually attends the winding up of a clock. Physician was glad to walk out into the night air, was even glad, in spite of his great experience, to sit down upon a doorstep for a little while, feeling sick and faint. Barr was a near neighbour of his, and, when he came to the house, he saw a light in the room, where he knew his friend often sat late getting up his work. As the light was never there, when Barr was not, it gave him assurance that Barr was not yet in bed. In fact, this busy bee had a verdict to get to-morrow, against evidence, and was improving the shining hours in setting snares for the gentlemen of the jury. Physician's knock astonished Barr but, as he immediately suspected that somebody had come to tell him that somebody else was robbing him, or otherwise trying to get the better of him, he came down promptly and softly. He had been clearing his head with a lotion of cold water, as a good preparative to providing hot water for the heads of the jury, and had been reading with the neck of his shirt thrown wide open, that he might the more freely choke the opposite witnesses, 
In consequence, he came down looking rather wild. Seeing physician, the least expected of men, he looked wilder, and said, "'What's the matter?' "'You asked me once what Myrtle's complaint was?' "'Extraordinary answer. I know I did. I told you I had not found out.' "'Yes, I know you did. I have found out.' "'My God!' said Barr, starting back and clapping his hand upon the other's breast. "'And so have I. I see it in your face.' They went into the nearest room, where physician gave him the letter to read. He read it through half a dozen times. There was not much in it as to quantity, but it made a great demand on his close and continuous attention. He could not sufficiently give utterance to his regret that he had not himself found a clue to this. The smallest clue, he said, would have made him master of the case, and what a case it would have been to have got to the bottom of. Physician had engaged to break the intelligence in Harley Street. Barr could not at once return to his enveiglements of the most enlightened and remarkable jury he had ever seen in that box, with whom he could tell his learned friend no shallow sophistry would go down, and no unhappily abused professional tact and skill prevail. This was the way he meant to begin with them. So he said he would go too, and would loiter to and fro near the house while his friend was inside. They walked there, the better to recover self-possession in the air, and the wings of day were fluttering the night and physician knocked at the door. A footman of rainbow hues in the public eye was sitting up for his master, that is to say was fast asleep in the kitchen, over a couple of candles and a newspaper, demonstrating the great accumulation of mathematical odds against the probabilities of a house being set on fire by accident. When this serving man was roused, physician had still to await the rousing of the chief butler. At last that noble creature came into the dining-room, in a flannel gown and list shoes, but with his cravat on, and a chief butler all over. It was morning now. Physician had opened the shutters of one window, while waiting, that he might see the light. "'Mrs. Myrtle's maid must be called, and told to get Mrs. Myrtle up, and prepare her as gently as she can to see me. I have dreadful news to break to her.' Thus Physician to the chief butler. The latter, who had a candle in his hand, called his man to take it away. Then he approached the window with dignity, looking on at physician's news exactly as he had looked on at the dinners in that very room. "'Mr. Myrtle is dead.' "'I should wish,' said the chief butler, "'to give a month's notice.' "'Mr. Myrtle has destroyed himself.' "'Sir,' said the chief butler, "'that is very unpleasant to the feelings of one in my position, as calculated to awake.' prejudice, and I should wish to leave immediately. "'If you are not shocked, are you not surprised, man?' demanded the physician warmly. The chief butler, erect and calm, replied in these memorable words, "'Sir, Mr. Myrtle never was the gentleman, and no ungentlemanly act on Mr. Myrtle's part would surprise me. Is there anybody else I can send to you?' or any other directions I can give before I leave, respecting what you would wish to be done." When physician, after discharging himself of his trust upstairs, rejoined Barr in the street, he said no more of his interview with Mrs. Myrtle than that he had not yet told her all, but that what he had told her she had borne pretty well. Barr had devoted his leisure in the street to the construction of a most ingenious man-trap for catching the whole of his jury at a blow 
having got that matter settled in his mind, it was lucid on the late catastrophe, and they walked home slowly, discussing it in every bearing. Before parting at the physician's door, they both looked up at the sunny morning sky, into which the smoke of a few early fires, and the breath and voices of a few early stirrers were peacefully rising, and then looked round upon the immense city, and said, if all those hundreds and thousands of beggared people, who were yet asleep, could only know, as they too spoke, the ruin that impended over them, what a fearful cry against one miserable soul would go up to heaven. The report that the great man was dead got about with astonishing rapidity. At first he was dead of all the diseases that ever were known, and of several brand-new maladies invented with the speed of light to meet the demand of the occasion. He had concealed a dropsy from infancy, he had inherited a large estate of water on the chest from his grandfather, he had had an operation performed upon him every morning of his life for eighteen years, he had been subject to the explosion of important veins in his body after the manner of fireworks, he had had something the matter with his lungs, he had had something the matter with his heart, he had had something the matter with his brain. Five hundred people who sat down to breakfast entirely uninformed on the whole subject, believed, before they had done breakfast, that they privately and personally knew physician to have said to Mr. Myrtle, "'You must expect to go out some day like the snuff of a candle,' and that they knew Mr. Myrtle to have said to physician, "'A man can die but once.' By about eleven o'clock in the forenoon, something the matter with the brain became the favourite theory against the field, and by twelve the something had been distinctly ascertained to be— pressure. Pressure was so entirely satisfactory to the public mind, and seemed to make everybody so comfortable that it might have lasted all day, but for bars having taken the real state of the case into court at half-past nine. This led to its beginning to be currently whispered all over London by about one, that Mr. Myrtle had killed himself. Pressure, however, so far from being overthrown by the discovery, became a greater favourite than ever. There was a general moralising upon pressure in every street. All the people who had tried to make money, and had not been able to do it, said, There you were. You no sooner began to devote yourself to the pursuit of wealth than you got pressure. The idle people improved the occasion in a similar manner. See, said they, what you brought yourself to by work, work, work. You persisted in working. You overdid it. Pressure came on, and you were done for. This consideration was very potent in many quarters, but nowhere more so than among the young clerks and partners who had never been in the slightest danger of overdoing it. These, one and all, declared, quite piously, that they hoped they would never forget the warning as long as they lived, and that their conduct might be so regulated as to keep off pressure, and preserve them a comfort to their friends for many years. But at about the time of high change, pressure began to wane, and appalling whispers to circulate, east, west, north, and south. At first they were faint, and went no further than a doubt whether Mr. Myrtle's wealth would be found to be as vast as had been supposed, whether there might not be a temporary difficulty in realising it, whether there might not even be a temporary suspension, say a month or so, on the part of the wonderful bank. As the whispers became louder, which they did from that time every minute, they became more threatening. He had sprung from nothing, by no natural growth or process that any one could account for. He had been, after all, a low, ignorant fellow. He had been a down-looking man, and no one had ever been able to catch his eye. 
he had been taken up by all sorts of people in quite an unaccountable manner. He had never had any money of his own, his ventures had been utterly reckless, and his expenditure had been most enormous. In steady progression, as the day declined, the talk rose in sound and purpose. He had left a letter at the baths, addressed to his physician, and his physician had got the letter, and the letter would be produced at the inquest on the morrow, and it would fall like a thunderbolt upon the multitude he had deluded. Numbers of men in every profession and trade would be blighted by his insolvency. Old people who had been in easy circumstances all their lives would have no place of repentance for their trust in him but the workhouse. Legions of women and children would have their whole future desolated by the hand of this mighty scoundrel. Every partaker of his magnificent feasts would be seen to have been a sharer in the plunder of innumerable homes. Every servile worshipper of riches who had helped to set him on his pedestal would have done better to worship the devil point-blank. So the talk lashed louder and higher by confirmation on confirmation, and by edition after edition of the evening papers, swelled into such a roar when night came, as might have brought one to believe that a solitary watcher on the gallery above the dome of St. Paul's would have perceived the night air to be laden with a heavy muttering of the name of Myrtle, coupled with every form of execration. For by that time it was known that the late Mr. Myrtle's complaint had been simply forgery and robbery. He, the uncouth object of such widespread adulation, the sitter at great men's feasts, the rock's egg of great ladies' assemblies, the subduer of exclusiveness, the leveller of pride, the patron of patrons, the bargain-driver with the minister for lordships of the circumlocution office, the recipient of more acknowledgment within some ten or fifteen years, at most, than had been bestowed in England upon all peaceful public benefactors, and upon all the leaders of all the arts and sciences, with all their works to testify for them, during two centuries at least. He, the shining wonder, the new constellation to be followed by the wise men bringing gifts, until it stopped over a certain carrion at the bottom of a bath, and disappeared was simply the greatest forger and the greatest thief that ever cheated the gallows. End of Book Two, Chapter Twenty Five. Book Two, Chapter Twenty Six of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches. Chapter Twenty Six, Reaping the Whirlwind. With a precursory sound of hurried breath and hurried feet, Mr. Pancks rushed into Arthur Clennam's counting house. The inquest was over. The letter was public. The bank was broken. The other model structures of straw had taken fire and were turned to smoke. The admired piratical ship had blown up, in the midst of a vast fleet of ships of all rates, and boats of all sizes, and on the deep was nothing but ruin, nothing but burning hulls, bursting magazines, great guns self-exploded, tearing friends and neighbours to pieces, drowning men clinging to unseaworthy spars, and going down every minute, spent swimmers floating dead, and sharks. The usual diligence and order of the counting-house at the works were overthrown. 
Unopened letters and unsorted papers lay strewn about the desk. In the midst of these tokens of prostrated energy and dismissed hope, the master of the counting-house stood idle in his usual place, with his arms crossed on the desk, and his head bowed down upon them. Mr. Pancks rushed in, and saw him, and stood still. In another minute Mr. Pancks's arms were on the desk, and Mr. Pancks's head was bowed down upon them, and for some time they remained in these attitudes, idle and silent, with the width of the little room between them. Mr. Pancks was the first to lift up his head and speak. "'I persuade you to it, Mr. Clennam. I know it. Say what you will. You can't say no more to me than I say to myself. You can't say more than I deserve.' "'Oh, Pancks, Pancks,' returned Clennam. "'Don't speak of deserving. What do I myself deserve?' "'Better luck.' said Pancks. "'I,' pursued Clennam, without attending to him, "'who have ruined my partner. Pancks, Pancks, I have ruined Doyce, the honest, self-helpful, indefatigable old man who has worked his way all through his life, the man who has contended against so much disappointment, and who has brought out of it such a good and hopeful nature.' the man i have felt so much for and meant to be so true and useful to i have ruined him brought him to shame and disgrace ruined him ruined him the agony into which the reflection wrought his mind was so distressing to see that mr pancks took hold of himself by the hair of his head and tore it in desperation at the spectacle reproach me cried pancks reproach me sir or I'll do myself an injury. Say, you fool, you villain, say, ass, how did you do it? Beast, what do you mean by it? Catch hold of me somewhere. Say something abusive to me. All the time Mr. Pancks was tearing at his tough hair in a most pitiless and cruel manner. If you had never yielded to this fatal mania, Pancks, said Clennam, more in commiseration than retaliation, it would have been how much better for you and how much better for me. "'At me again, sir!' cried Pancks, grinding his teeth in remorse. "'At me again!' "'If you had never gone into those accursed calculations, and brought out your results with such abominable clearness,' groaned Clennam, "'it would have been how much better for you, Pancks, and how much better for me.' "'At me again, sir!' exclaimed Pancks, loosening his hold of his hair. "'At me again, and again!' Clennam, however, finding him already beginning to be pacified, had said all he wanted to say, and more. He wrung his hand, only adding, "'Blind leaders of the blind, Panks! Blind leaders of the blind! But Doyce, 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 my injured partner!' That brought his head down on the desk once more. Their former attitudes and their former silence were once more first encroached upon by Pancks. "'Not been to bed, sir, since it began to get about. Been I, and low, on the chance of finding some hope of saving any cinders from the fire. All in vain. All gone. All vanished.' "'I know it,' returned Clennam, "'too well.' Mr. Pancks filled up a pause with a groan that came out of the very depths of his soul. "'Only yesterday, Pancks,' said Arthur, "'only yesterday, Monday, 
I had the fixed intention of selling, realising, and making an end of it. "'I can't say as much for myself, sir,' returned Pancks, "'though it's wonderful how many people I've heard of who were going to realise yesterday, of all days in the three hundred and sixty-five, if it hadn't been too late.' His steam-like breathings, usually droll in their effect, were more tragic than so many groans while from head to foot he was in that begrimed, besmeared, neglected state that he might have been an authentic portrait of misfortune, which could scarcely be discerned through its want of cleaning. "'Mr. Clennam, had you laid out everything?' He got over the break before the last word, and also brought out the last word itself with great difficulty. "'Everything.' Mr. Pancks took hold of his tough hair again, and gave it such a wrench that he pulled out several prongs of it. After looking at these with an eye of wild hatred, he put them in his pocket. "'My course,' said Clennam, brushing away some tears that had been silently dropping down his face, "'must be taken at once. What wretched amends I can make must be made. I must clear my unfortunate partner's reputation. I must retain nothing for myself.' I must resign to our creditors the power of management I have so much abused, and I must work out as much of my fault or crime as is susceptible of being worked out in the rest of my days. Is it impossible, sir, to tide over the present? Out of the question. Nothing can be tided over now. Thanks. The sooner the business can pass out of my hands, the better for it. There are engagements to be met, this week, which would bring the catastrophe before many days were over, even if I would postpone it for a single day by going on for that space, secretly knowing what I know. All last night I thought of what I would do. What remains is to do it. "'Not entirely of yourself,' said Pancks, whose face was as damp as if his steam were turning into water as fast as he dismally blew it off. "'Have some legal help.' Perhaps I had better. Have rug. There is not much to do. He will do it as well as another. Shall I fetch rug, Mr. Clennam? If you could spare the time, I should be much obliged to you. Mr. Pancks put on his hat that moment, and steamed away to Pentonville. While he was gone, Arthur never raised his head from the desk, but remained in that one position. Mr. Pancks brought his friend and professional adviser, Mr. Rugg, back with him. Mr. Rugg had had such ample experience on the road of Mr. Pancks's being at that present in an irrational state of mind, that he opened his professional mediation by requesting that gentleman to take himself out of the way. Mr. Pancks, crushed and submissive, obeyed. "'He's not unlike what my daughter was, sir, when we began the breach of promise action of Rugg and Borkins, in which she was plaintiff,' said Mr. Rugg. "'He takes too strong and direct an interest in the case. His feelings are worked upon. There is no getting on in our profession with feelings worked upon, sir.' As he pulled off his gloves and put them in his hat, he saw, in a side-glance or two, that a great change had come over his client. "'I am sorry to perceive, sir,' said Mr. Rugg, "'that you have been allowing your feelings to be worked upon. Now, pray don't. Pray don't. These losses are much to be deplored, sir, 
but we must look him in the face. "'If the money I have sacrificed had been all my own, Mr. Rugg,' sighed Mr. Clennam, "'I should have cared far less.' "'Indeed, sir,' said Mr. Rugg, rubbing his hands with a cheerful air, "'you surprise me. That's singular, sir. I have generally found in my experience that it's their own money people are most particular about. I've seen people get rid of a good deal of other people's money, and bear it very well. Very well, indeed.' With these comforting remarks, Mr. Rugg seated himself on an office-stool at the desk, and proceeded to business. "'Now, Mr. Clennam, by your leave, let us go into the matter. Let us see the state of the case. The question is simple. The question is the usual, plain, straightforward, common-sense question. What can we do for ourself? What can we do for ourself?' "'This is not the question with me, Mr. Rugg,' said Arthur. "'You mistake it in the beginning. It is, what can I do for my partner? How can I best make reparation to him?' "'I'm afraid, sir, do you know,' argued Mr. Rugg persuasively, "'that you are still allowing your feelings to be worked upon. I don't like the term reparation, sir, except as a lever in the hands of counsel. Will you excuse my saying that I feel it my duty to offer you the caution that you really must not allow your feelings to be worked upon?' "'Mr. Rugg,' said Clennam, nerving himself to go through with what he had resolved upon, and surprising that gentleman by appearing, in his despondency, to have a settled determination of purpose. "'You give me the impression that you will not be much disposed to adopt the course I have made up my mind to take. If your disapproval of it should render you unwilling to discharge that business, as it necessitates, I am sorry for it, and must seek other aid. What I will represent to you at once— that to argue against it with me is useless. "'Good, sir,' answered Mr. Rugg, shrugging his shoulders. "'Good, sir. Since the business is to be done by some hands, let it be done by mine. Such was my principle in the case of Rugg and Borkins. Such is my principle in most cases.' Clennam then proceeded to state to Mr. Rugg his fixed resolution. He told Mr. Rugg that his partner was a man of great simplicity and integrity and that in all he meant to do, he was guided above all things by a knowledge of his partner's character and a respect for his feelings. He explained that his partner was then absent on an enterprise of importance, and that he particularly behoved himself publicly to accept the blame of what he had rashly done, and publicly to exonerate his partner from all participation in the responsibility of it, lest the successful conduct of that enterprise should be endangered by the slightest suspicion wrongly attaching to his partner's honour and credit in another country. He told Mr. Rugg that to clear his partner morally to the fullest extent, and publicly and unreservedly to declare that he, Arthur Clennam, of that firm, had of his own sole act, and even expressly against his partner's caution, embarked his resources in the swindles that had lately perished was the only real atonement within his power, was a better atonement to the particular man than it would be to many men, and was therefore the atonement he had first to make. With this view, his intention was to print a declaration to the foregoing effect, which he had already drawn up, and besides circulating it among all who had dealings with the house, 
to advertise it in the public papers. Concurrently with this measure, the description of which cost Mr. Rugg innumerable wry faces and great uneasiness in his limbs, he would address a letter to all the creditors, exonerating his partner in a solemn manner, informing them of the stoppage of the house until their pleasure could be known, and his partner communicated with, and humbly submitting himself to their direction. If, through their consideration for his partner's innocence, the affairs could ever be got into such train as that business could be profitably resumed, and its present downfall overcome, then his own share in it should revert to his partner, as the only reparation he could make to him in money value for the distress and loss he had unhappily brought upon him, and he himself, at as small a salary as he could live upon, would ask to be allowed to serve the business as a faithful clerk. Though Mr. Rugg saw plainly there was no preventing this from being done, still the wryness of his face, and the uneasiness of his limbs, so sorely required the propitiation of a protest that he made one. "'I offer no objection, sir,' said he. "'I argue no point with you. I will carry out your views, sir, but under protest.' Mr. Rugg then stated, not without prolixity, the heads of his protest. These were, in effect, because the whole town, or he might say the whole country, was in the first madness of the late discovery, and the resentment against the victims would be very strong, those who had not been deluded being certain to wax exceedingly wroth with them for not having been as wise as they were, and those who had been deluded being certain to find excuses and reasons for themselves of which they were equally certain to see that other sufferers were wholly devoid not to mention the great probability of every individual sufferer persuading himself, to his violent indignation, that but for the example of all the other sufferers he never would have put himself in the way of suffering. Because such a declaration as Clennam's, made at such a time, would certainly draw down upon him a storm of animosity, rendering it impossible to calculate on forbearance in the creditors or on unanimity among them, and exposing him a solitary target to a straggling cross-fire which might bring him down from half a dozen quarters at once. To all this Clennam merely replied that, granting the whole protest, nothing in it lessened the force, or could lessen the force, of the voluntary and public exoneration of his partner. He therefore, once and for all, requested Mr. Rugg's immediate aid in getting the business dispatched. Upon that Mr. Rugg fell to work and Arthur, retaining no property to himself but his clothes and books, and a little loose money, placed his small private banker's account with the papers of the business. The disclosure was made, and the storm raged fearfully. Thousands of people were wildly staring about for somebody alive to heap reproaches on, and this notable case, courting publicity, set the living somebody so much wanted on a scaffold. When people who had nothing to do with the case were so sensible of its flagrancy, people who lost money by it could scarcely be expected to deal mildly with it. Letters of reproach and evective showered in from the creditors, and Mr. Rugg, who sat upon the high stool every day and read them all, informed his client within a week that he feared there were writs out. "'I must take the consequences of what I have done,' said Clennam. "'The writs will find me here.' On the very next morning, as he was turning in Bleeding Heart Yard, by Mrs. Plornish's corner, Mrs. Plornish stood at the door waiting for him, and mysteriously besought him to step into Happy Cottage. There he found Mr. Rugg. 
"'I thought I'd wait for you here. I wouldn't go on to the counting-house this morning if I was you, sir.' "'Why not, Mr. Rugg?' "'There are as many as five out, to my knowledge.' "'It cannot be too soon over,' said Clennam. "'Let them take me at once.' "'Yes, but,' said Mr. Rugg, getting between him and the door, "'hear reason, hear reason. They'll take you soon enough, Mr. Clennam, I don't doubt, but hear reason. It almost always happens, in these cases, that some insignificant matter pushes itself in front and makes much of itself. Now, I find there's a little one out, a mere palace court jurisdiction, and I have reason to believe that a caption may be made upon that. I wouldn't be taken upon that. Why not? asked Clennam. I'll be taken on a full-grown one, sir, said Mr. Rugg. It's as well to keep up appearances. As your professional adviser, I should prefer your being taken on a writ from one of the superior courts, if you have no objection to do me that favour. It looks better. Mr. Rugg, said Arthur in his dejection, my only wish is that it should be over. I will go on and take my chance. Another word of reason, sir, cried Mr. Rugg. Now, this is reason. The other may be taste, but this is reason. If you should be taken on a little one, sir, you would go to the Marshalsea. Now, you know what the Marshalsea is. Very close, excessively confined. Whereas in the King's Bench, Mr. Rugg waved his right hand freely, as expressing abundance of space. "'I would rather,' said Clennam, "'be taken to the Marshalsea than to any other prison.' "'Do you say so indeed, sir?' returned Mr. Rugg. "'Then this is taste, too, and we may be walking.' He was a little offended at first, but he soon overlooked it. They walked through the yard to the other end. The bleeding hearts were more interested in Arthur since his reverses than formerly now regarding him as one who was true to the place, and had taken up his freedom. Many of them came out to look after him, and to observe to one another, with great unctuousness, that he was pulled down by it. Mrs. Plornish and her father stood at the top of the steps at their own end, much depressed, and shaking their heads. There was nobody visibly in waiting when Arthur and Mr. Rugg arrived at the counting-house, but an elderly member of the Jewish persuasion, preserved in rum, followed them close, and looked in at the glass before Mr. Rugg had opened one of the day's letters. "'Oh,' said Mr. Rugg, looking up, "'how do you do? Step in, Mr. Clennam. I think this is a gentleman I was mentioning.' This gentleman explained the object of his visit to be a tifling madder of business, and executed his legal function. "'Shall I accompany you, Mr. Clennam?' asked Mr. Rugg politely, rubbing his hands. "'I would rather go alone, thank you. Be so good as to send me my clothes.' Mr. Rugg, in a light, airy way, replied in the affirmative, and shook hands with him. He and his attendant then went downstairs, got into the first conveyance they found, and drove to the old gates. "'Where I little thought, heaven forgive me,' said Clennam to himself, "'that I should ever enter thus.' Mr. Chivery was on the lock, and young John was in the lodge, either newly released from it, or waiting to take his own spell of duty. 
both were more astonished on seeing who the prisoner was than one might have thought turnkeys would have been. The elder Mr. Chivery shook hands with him in a shamefaced kind of way, and said, "'I don't call to mind, sir, as I was ever less glad to see you.' The younger Mr. Chivery was more distant, did not shake hands with him at all. He stood looking at him in a state of indecision so observable that it even came within the observation of Clennam with his heavy eyes and heavy heart. Presently afterwards young John disappeared into the jail. As Clennam knew enough of the place to know that he was required to remain in the lodge a certain time, he took a seat in a corner, and feigned to be occupied with the perusal of letters from his pocket. They did not so engross his attention, but that he saw, with gratitude, how the elderly Mr. Chivery kept the lodge clear of prisoners, how he signed to some, with his keys, not to come in, how he nudged others with his elbows to go out, and how he made his misery as easy to him as he could. Arthur was sitting with his eyes fixed on the floor, recalling the past, brooding over the present, and not attending to either, when he felt himself touched upon the shoulder. It was by young John, and he said, "'You can come now.' He got up and followed young John. When they had gone a step or two within the inner iron gate, young John turned and said to him, "'You want a room? I've got you one.' "'I thank you heartily.' Young John turned again, and took him in at the old doorway, up the old staircase, into the old room. Arthur stretched out his hand. Young John looked at it, looked at him, sternly, swelled, choked, and said, "'I don't know as I can. No, I find I can't. But I thought you'd like the room, and here it is for you.' Surprise at this inconsistent behaviour yielded when he was gone, he went away directly, to the feelings which the empty room soon awakened in Clennam's wounded breast, and to the crowding associations with the one good and gentle creature who had sanctified it. Her absence in his altered fortunes made it, and him in it, so very desolate, and so much in need of such a face of love and truth, that he turned against the wall to weep, sobbing out, as his heart relieved itself. "'Oh, my little Dorrit!' End of Book Two, Chapter Twenty-Six Book Two, Chapter Twenty-Seven of Little Dorrit this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book Two, Riches, Chapter Twenty Seven, The Pupil of the Marshalsea. The day was sunny, and the Marshalsea, with the hot noon striking upon it, was unwontedly quiet. Arthur Clennam dropped into a solitary armchair, itself as faded as any debtor in the jail and yielded himself to his thoughts. In the unnatural peace of having gone through the dreaded arrest, and got there, the first change of feeling which the prison most commonly induced, and from which dangerous resting-place so many men had slipped down to the depths of degradation, and disgrace by so many ways, he could think of some passages in his life, almost as if he were removed from them, into another state of existence. Taking into account where he was, the interest that had first brought him there, when he had been free to keep away, 
and the gentle presence that was equally inseparable from the walls and bars about him, and from the impalpable remembrances of his later life, which no walls or bars could imprison, it was not remarkable that everything his memory turned upon should bring him round again to Little Dorrit. Yet it was remarkable to him, not because of the fact itself, but because of the reminder it brought with it, how much the dear little creature had influenced his better resolutions. None of us clearly know to whom or to what we are indebted in this wise, until some marked stop in the whirling wheel of life brings the right perception with it. It comes with sickness, it comes with sorrow, it comes with the loss of the dearly loved. It is one of the most frequent uses of adversity. It came to Clennam, in his adversity, strongly and tenderly. When I first gathered myself together, he thought, and set something like purpose before my jaded eyes, whom had I before me, toiling on, for a good object's sake, without encouragement, without notice, against ignoble obstacles that would have turned an army of received heroes and heroines? One weak girl. When I tried to conquer my misplaced love, and to be generous to the man who was more fortunate than I, though he should never know it, or repay me with a gracious word, in whom I had watched patience, self-denial, self-subdual, charitable construction, the noblest generosity of the affections, in the same poor girl, if I, a man, with a man's advantages and means and energies, had slighted the whisper in my heart, that if my father had erred, it was my first duty to conceal the fault and to repair it, what youthful figure, with tender feet, going almost bare on the damp ground, with spare hands ever working, with its slight shape, but half protected from the sharp weather, would have stood before me to put me to shame? Little Dorrit's. So always, as he sat alone in the faded chair, thinking, always little Dorrit, until it seemed to him as if he met the reward of having wandered away from her, and suffered anything to pass between him and his remembrance of her virtues. His door was opened, and the head of the elder Chivery was put in a very little way, without being turned towards him. "'I am off the lock, Mr. Clennam, and going out. Can I do anything for you?' "'Many thanks. Nothing.' "'You'll excuse me opening the door,' said Mr. Chivery, "'but I couldn't make you hear.' "'Did you knock?' "'Half a dozen times.' Rousing himself, Clennam observed that the prison had awakened from its noontide doze, that the inmates were loitering about the shady yard, and that it was late in the afternoon. He had been thinking for hours. "'Your things is come,' said Mr. Chivery and my son is going to carry em up. I should have sent em up, but for his wishing to carry em himself. Indeed, he would have em himself, and so I couldn't send him up. Mr. Clennam, could I say a word to you? Pray come in, said Arthur, for Mr. Chivery's head was still put in at the door a very little way, and Mr. Chivery had but one ear upon him, instead of both eyes. This was native delicacy in Mr. Chivery, true politeness, though his exterior had very much of a turnkey about it, and not the least of a gentleman. "'Thank you, sir,' said Mr. Chivery, without advancing. "'It's no odds me coming in. Mr. Clennam, don't you take no notice of my son, if you'll be so good, in case you find him cut up any ways difficult. My son has a heart.' 
and my son's heart is in the right place. Me and his mother knows where to find it, and we find it situated correct. With this mysterious speech, Mr. Chivery took his ear away and shut the door. He might have been gone ten minutes when his son succeeded him. "'Here's your portmanteau,' he said to Arthur, putting it carefully down. "'It's very kind of you. I am ashamed that you should have the trouble.' He was gone before it came to that, but soon returned, saying exactly as before, "'Here's your black box,' which he also put down with care. "'I am very sensible of this attention. I hope we may shake hands now, Mr. John.' Young John, however, drew back, turning his right wrist in a socket made of his left thumb and middle finger, and said, as he had said at first, "'I don't know as I can. No, I find I can't.' He then stood regarding the prisoner sternly, though with a swelling humour in his eyes that looked like pity. "'Why are you angry with me?' said Clennam, "'and yet so ready to do me these kind services. There must be some mistake between us.' If I have done anything to occasion it, I am sorry. "'No mistake, sir,' returned John, turning the wrist backwards and forwards in the socket, for which it was rather tight. "'No mistake, sir. In the feelings with which my eyes behold you at the present moment, if I was at all fairly equal to your weight, Mr. Clennam, which I am not, and if you weren't under a cloud, which you are, and if it wasn't against all rules of the Marshalsea, which is, those feelings are such that they would stimulate me more to having it out with you in a round, on the present spot, and to anything else I could name." Arthur looked at him for a moment in some wonder, and some little anger. "'Well, well,' he said, "'a mistake, a mistake.' Turning away, he sat down with a heavy sigh in the faded chair again. Young John followed him with his eyes, and after a short pause cried out, "'I beg your pardon.' Uh, "'Freely granted,' said Clennam, waving his hand without raising his sunken head. "'Say no more. I'm not worth it.' "'This furniture, sir,' said young John, in a voice of mild and soft explanation, "'belongs to me. I'm in the habit of letting it out to parties without furniture that have the room. It ain't much, but it's at your service. Free, I mean.' I could not think of letting you have it on any other terms. You're welcome to it for nothing." Arthur raised his head again to thank him, and to say he could not accept the favour. John was still turning his wrist, and still contending with himself in his former divided manner. "'What is the matter between us?' said Arthur. "'I decline to name it, sir,' returned young John, suddenly turning loud and sharp. "'Nothing's the matter.' Arthur looked at him again in vain for an explanation of his behaviour. After a while, Arthur turned away his head again. Young John said, presently afterwards, with the utmost mildness, "'The little round table, sir, as nigh your elbow, was—you know whose. I needn't mention him. He died a great gentleman. I bought it of an individual that he gave it to, and that lived here after him. But the individual wasn't any ways equal to him. Most individuals would find it hard to come up to his level." Arthur drew the little table nearer, rested his arm upon it, and kept it there. "'Perhaps you may not be aware, sir,' said young John, "'that I intruded upon him 
when he was over here in London. On the whole he was of opinion that it was an intrusion, though he was so good as to ask me to sit down, and to inquire after father and all other old friends, leastways humblest acquaintances. He looked, to me, a good deal changed, and I said so when I came back. I asked him if Miss Amy was well. And she was. I should have thought you would have known without putting the question to such as me, returned young John, after appearing to take a large invisible pill. Since you do put the question, I'm sorry I can't answer it. But the truth is, he looked upon the inquiry as a liberty, and said, what was that to me? It was then I became quite aware I was intruding, of which I had been fearful before. However, he spoke very handsome afterwards, very handsome. They were both silent for several minutes, except that young John remarked, at about the middle of the pause, he both spoke and acted very handsome. It was again young John who broke the silence by inquiring, "'If he's not a liberty, how long may it be your intention, sir, to go without eating and drinking?' "'I have not felt the want of anything yet,' returned Clennam. "'I have no appetite just now.' "'The more reason why you should take some support, sir,' urged young John, "'If you find yourself going on sitting here for hours and hours, partaking of no refreshments, because you have no appetite, why, then you should, and must, partake of refreshment, without an appetite. I'm going to have tea in my own apartment. If it's not a liberty, please to come and take a cup, or I can bring a tray here in two minutes.' Feeling that young John would impose that trouble on himself if he refused, and also feeling anxious to show that he bore in mind both the elder Mr. Chivery's entreaty and the younger Mr. Chivery's apology, Arthur rose and expressed his willingness to take a cup of tea in Mr. John's apartment. Young John locked his door for him as they went out, slided the key into his pocket with great dexterity, and led the way to his own residence. It was at the top of the house, nearest to the gateway. It was the room to which Clennam had hurried on the day when the enriched family had left the prison for ever and where he had lifted her insensible from the floor. He foresaw where they were going, as soon as their feet touched the staircase. The room was so far changed that it was papered now, and had been repainted, and was far more comfortably furnished, but he could recall it just as he had seen it in that single glance, when he raised her from the ground and carried her down to the carriage. Young John looked hard at him, biting his fingers. "'I see you recollect the room, Mr. Clennam. I recollect it well. Heaven bless her." Oblivious of the tea, young John continued to bite his fingers, and to look at his visitor, as long as his visitor continued to glance about the room. Finally he made a start at the teapot, gustily rattled a quantity of tea into it from a canister, and set off for the common kitchen to fill it with hot water. The room was so eloquent to Clennam, in the changed circumstances of his return to the miserable Marshalsea, it spoke to him so mournfully of her, and of his loss of her, that it would have gone hard with him to resist it, even though he had not been alone. Alone he did not try. He had his hand on the insensible wall as tenderly as if it had been herself that he touched, and pronounced her name in a low voice. He stood at the window, looking over the prison parapet with its grim spiked border, and breathed a benediction through the summer haze towards the distant land where she was rich and prosperous. 
young John was some time absent, and, when he came back, showed that he had been outside by bringing with him fresh butter in a cabbage-leaf, some thin slices of boiled ham in another cabbage-leaf, and a little basket of watercresses and salad herbs. When these were arranged upon the table to his satisfaction, they sat down to tea. Clennam tried to do honour to the meal, but unavailingly. The ham sickened him, the bread seemed to turn to sand in his mouth, he could force nothing upon himself but a cup of tea. "'Try a little something green,' said young John, handing him the basket. He took a sprig or so of watercress, and tried again. But the bread turned to a heavier sand than before, and the ham, though it was good enough of itself, seemed to blow a faint simoom of ham through the whole marshalsea. "'Try a little more something green, sir,' said young John, and again handed the basket. It was so like handing green meat into the cage of a dull imprisoned bird, and John had so evidently brought the little basket, as a handful of fresh relief from the stale hot paving-stones and bricks of the jail, that Clennam said, with a smile, "'It was very kind of you to think of putting this between the wires, but I cannot even get this down to-day.' As if the difficulty were contagious, young John soon pushed away his own plate, and fell to folding the cabbage-leaf that had contained the ham. When he had folded it into a number of layers, one over another, so that it was small in the palm of his hand, he began to flatten it between both his hands, and to eye Clennam attentively. "'I wonder,' he at length said, compressing his green packet with some force, "'that, if it's not worth your while to take care of yourself for your own sake, it's not worth doing for someone else's.' "'Truly,' returned Arthur, with a sigh and a smile, "'I don't know for whose.' "'Mr. Clennam,' said John, warmly, "'I'm surprised that a gentleman who is capable of the straightforwardness that you are capable of, should be capable of the mean action of making me such an answer. Mr. Clennam, I'm surprised that a gentleman who is capable of having a heart of his own, should be capable of the heartlessness of treating mine in that way. I'm astonished at it, sir. Really and truly, I'm astonished.' Having got upon his feet to emphasise his concluding words, young John sat down again, and fell to rolling his green packet on his right leg, never taking his eyes off Clennam, but surveying him with a fixed look of indignant reproach. "'I had got over it, sir,' said John. "'I had conquered it, knowing that it must be conquered, and had come to the resolution to think no more about it. I shouldn't have given my mind to it again, I hope, if to this prison you had not been brought.' and in an hour unfortunate for me this day." In his agitation, young John adopted his mother's powerful construction of sentences. "'When you first came upon me, sir, in the lodge this day, more as if an upas-tree had been made a capture of than a private defendant, such mingled streams of feelings broke loose again within me, that everything was for the first few minutes swept away before them, and I was going round and round in a vortex. I got out of it. I struggled and got out of it. If it was the last word I had to speak, against that vortex with my utmost powers I strove, and out of it I came. I argued that if I had been rude, apologies was due, and those apologies without a question of demeaning I did make. And now, when I have been so wishful to show that one thought is next to being a holy one with me, and goes before all others, now, after all, 
you dodge me when I ever so gently hint at it, and throw me back upon myself. For do you not, sir? said young John. Do not be so base as to deny that dodge you do, and throw me back upon myself you have. All amazement, Arthur gazed at him like one lost, only saying, What is it? What do you mean, John? But John, being in that state of mind in which nothing could seem to be more impossible to a certain class of people than the giving of an answer, went ahead blindly. "'I hadn't,' John declared. "'No, I hadn't. And I never had the audaciousness to think, I am sure, that all was anything but lost. I hadn't, no, why should I say I hadn't, if I ever had, any hope that it was possible to be so blessed. Not after the words that passed, not even if barriers unsurmountable had not been raised. But is that a reason why I am to have no memory, why I am to have no thoughts, why I am to have no sacred spots, nor anything? "'What can you mean?' cried Arthur. "'It's all very well to trample on it, sir,' John went on, scouring a very prairie of wild words. "'If a person can make up his mind to be guilty of the action, it's all very well to trample on it, but it's there.' It may be that it couldn't be trampled upon if it wasn't there. But that doesn't make it gentlemanly. That doesn't make it honourable. That doesn't justify throwing a person back upon himself after he's struggled and strived out of himself like a butterfly. The world may sneer at a turnkey, but he's a man, when he isn't a woman, which among female criminals he's expected to be. Ridiculous as the incoherence of his talk was, there was yet a truthfulness in young John's simple, sentimental character and a sense of being wounded in some very tender respect, expressed in his burning face, and in the agitation of his voice and manner, which Arthur must have been cruel to disregard. He turned his thoughts back to the starting-point of this unknown injury, and in the meantime young John, having rolled his green packet pretty round, cut it carefully into three pieces, and laid it on a plate, as if it were some particular delicacy. "'It seems to me just possible,' said Arthur, when he had retraced the conversation to the watercresses and back again, that you have made some reference to Miss Dorrit. "'It is just possible, sir,' returned John Chivery. "'I don't understand it. I hope I may not be so unlucky as to make you think I mean to offend you again, for I never have meant to offend you yet, when I say I don't understand it.' "'Sir,' said young John, "'will you have the perfidy?' to deny that you know, and long have known, that I felt towards Miss Dorrit, call it not the presumption of love, but adoration and sacrifice? Indeed, John, I will not have any perfidy, if I know it. Why you should suspect me of it, I am at a loss to think. Did you ever hear from Mrs. Chivery, your mother, that I went to see her once? No, sir, returned John shortly. Never heard of such a thing. "'But I did. Can you imagine why?' "'No, sir,' returned John shortly. "'I can't imagine why.' "'I will tell you. I was solicitous to promote Miss Dorrit's happiness, and if I could have supposed that Miss Dorrit returned your affection—' Poor John Chivery turned crimson to the tips of his ears. "'Miss Dorrit never did, sir. I wish to be honourable and true.' so far as in my humble way I can. And I would scorn to pretend for a moment 
that she ever did, or that she ever led me to believe she did. No, nor even that it was ever to be expected in any cool reason that she would or could. She was far above me in all respects, at all times. As likewise, added John, similarly was her genteel family. His chivalrous feeling towards all that belonged to her made him so very respectable, in spite of his small stature and his rather weak legs, and his very weak hair, and his poetical temperament, that a Goliath might have sat in his place, demanding less consideration at Arthur's hands. "'You speak, John,' he said with cordial admiration, "'like a man.' "'Well, sir,' returned John, brushing his hand across his eyes, "'then I wish you'd do the same.' He was quick with this unexpected retort, and it again made Arthur regard him with a wondering expression of face. "'Leastways,' said John, stretching his hand across the tea-tray, "'if too strong a remark, withdrawn. "'But why not? Why not? "'When I say to you, Mr. Clennam, "'take care of yourself for someone else's sake, "'why not be open, though a turnkey? "'Why did I get you the room which I knew you'd like best? "'Why did I carry up your things? "'Not that I found them heavy. "'I don't mention them on that accounts. "'Far from it. "'Why have I cultivated you in the manner I have done since the morning?' "'On the ground of your own merits? "'No. "'They're very great, I've no doubt at all. "'But not on the ground of them. "'Another's merits have had their weight, "'and have had far more weight with me. "'Then why not speak free?' "'Unaffectedly, John,' said Clennam, "'you are so good a fellow, "'and I have so true a respect for your character, "'that if I have appeared to be less sensible than I really am, "'of the fact that the kind services you have rendered me to-day "'are attributable to my having been trusted by Miss Dorrit as her friend, "'I confess it to be a fault, and I ask your forgiveness.' "'No, why not?' John repeated with returning scorn. "'Why not speak free?' "'I declare to you,' returned Arthur, "'that I do not understand you. "'Look at me. "'Consider the trouble I have been in. "'Is it likely that I would wilfully add to my other self-reproaches "'that of being ungrateful or treacherous to you? "'I do not understand you.' "'John's incredulous face slowly softened into a face of doubt. "'He rose, backed into the garret window of the room, "'beckoned Arthur to come there, "'and stood looking at him thoughtfully.' "'Mr. Clennam, do you make this say that you don't know?' "'What, John?' "'Lord!' said young John, appealing with a gasp to the spikes on the wall. "'He says what?' Clennam looked at the spikes, and looked at John, and looked at the spikes, and looked at John. "'He says what? And what is more?' exclaimed young John, surveying him in a doleful maze. "'He appears to mean it. "'Do you see this window, sir?' "'Of course I see this window.' "'See this room?' "'Why, of course I see this room.' "'That wall opposite, and that yard down below. "'They have all been witnesses of it, from day to day, from night to night, from week to week, from month to month. "'For how often have I seen Miss Dorrit here?' when she has not seen me. "'Witnesses of what?' said Clennam. "'Of Miss Dorrit's love.' "'For whom?' 
"'You!' said John, and touched him with the back of his hand upon the breast, and backed to his chair, and sat down on it with a pale face, holding the arms, and shaking his head at him. If he had dealt Clennam a heavy blow, instead of laying that light touch upon him, its effect could not have been to shake him more. He stood amazed, his eyes looking at John, his lips parted, and seeming now and then to form the word, me, without uttering it. His hands dropped at his sides, his whole appearance that of a man who has been awakened from sleep, and stupefied by intelligence beyond his full comprehension. "'Me?' he at length said aloud. "'Ah!' groaned young John. "'You!' He did what he could to muster a smile, and returned, "'Your fancy. You are completely mistaken.' "'I mistaken, sir,' said young John. "'I completely mistaken on that subject. "'No, Mr. Clennam, don't tell me so. "'On any other, if you like.' for I don't set up to be a penetrating character, and am well aware of my own deficiencies. But I, mistaken on the point that has caused me more smart in my breast than a flight of savage arrows could have done, I, mistaken on the point that almost sent me into my grave, as I sometimes wished it would, if the grave could only have been made compatible with the tobacco business and father and mother's feelings. I, mistaken on a point that, even at the present moment, makes me take out me pocket-handkercher, like a great girl, as people say, though I'm sure I don't know why a great girl should be a term of reproach, for every rightly constituted male mind loves them great and small. Don't tell me so. Don't tell me so. Still highly respectable at bottom, though absurd enough upon the surface, young John took out his pocket-handkerchief, with a genuine absence both of display and concealment, which is only to be seen in a man with a great deal of good in him, when he takes out his pocket-handkerchief for the purpose of wiping his eyes. Having dried them, and indulged in the harmless luxury of a sob and a sniff, he put it up again. The touch was still in its influence so like a blow, that Arthur could not get many words together to close the subject with. He assured John Chivery, when he had returned his handkerchief to his pocket, that he did all honour to his disinterestedness, and to the fidelity of his remembrance of Miss Dorrit. As to the impression on his mind, of which he had just relieved it, here John interposed, and said, "'No impression! Certainty!' As to that, they might perhaps speak of it at another time, but would say no more now. Feeling low-spirited and weary, he would go back to his room, with John's leave, and come out no more that night. John assented, and he crept back into the shadow of the wall, to his own lodging. The feeling of the blow was still so strong upon him that, when the dirty old woman was gone, whom he found sitting on the stairs outside his door, waiting to make his bed, and who gave him to understand while doing it that she had received her instructions from Mr. Chivery—not the olden, but the young un—he sat down in the faded armchair, pressing his head between his hands, as if he had been stunned. Little Dorrit love him! More bewildering to him than his misery, far! Consider the improbability. He had been accustomed to call her his child, and his dear child, and to invite her confidence by dwelling upon the difference in their respective ages, and to speak of himself as one who was turning old. Yet she might not have thought of him old. 
something reminded him that he had not thought himself so, until the roses had floated away upon the river. He had her two letters, among other papers, in his box, and he took them out and read them. There seemed to be a sound in them like the sound of her sweet voice. It fell upon his ear with many tones of tenderness that were not insusceptible of the new meaning. Now it was at the quiet desolation of her answer, No, 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 made to him that night in that very room, that night when he had been shown the dawn of her altered fortune, and when other words had passed between them which he had been destined to remember in humiliation and a prisoner, rushed into his mind. Consider the improbability. But it had a preponderating tendency, one considered, to become fainter. There was another and a curious inquiry of his own hearts that concurrently became stronger. In the reluctance he had felt to believe that she loved any one, in his desire to set that question at rest, in a half-formed consciousness he had had that there would be a kind of nobleness in his helping her love for any one, was there no suppressed something on his own side that he had hushed as it arose? Had he ever whispered to himself that he must not think of such a thing as her loving him, that he must not take advantage of her gratitude, that he must keep his experience in remembrance as a warning and reproof, that he must regard such youthful hopes as having passed away, as his friend's dead daughter had passed away, that he must be steady in saying to himself that the time had gone by him, and he was too saddened and old. He had kissed her when he raised her from the ground, on the day when she had been so consistently and expressively forgotten, quite as he might have kissed her if she had been conscious. No difference. The darkness found him occupied with these thoughts. The darkness also found Mr. and Mrs. Plornish knocking at his door. They brought with them a basket, filled with choice selections from that stock-in-trade which met with such a quick sale, and produced such a slow return. Mrs. Plornish was affected to tears. Mr. Plornish amiably growled in his philosophical but not lucid manner. "'That there was ups, you see, and there was downs. It was in vain to ask why ups, why downs. There there was, you know.' He had heard it given for a truth that, "'According, as the world went round, which round it did revolve, undoubted, even the best of gentlemen must take his turn of standing with his head upside down, and all his hair a-flying the wrong way into what you might call space. Very well, then. What Mr. Plornish said was, Very well, then. That gentleman's head would come upwards when his turn come. That gentleman's hair would be a pleasure to look upon being all smooth again. And very well, then. It has been already stated that Mrs. Plornish, not being philosophical, wept. It further happened that Mrs. Plornish, not being philosophical, was intelligible. It may have arisen out of her softened state of mind, out of her sex's wit, out of a woman's quick association of ideas, or out of a woman's no association of ideas. But it further happened somehow that Mrs. Plornish's intelligibility displayed itself upon the very subject of Arthur's meditations. "'The way father has been talking about you, Mr. Clennam,' said Mrs. Plornish, "'you hardly would believe. It's made him quite poorly. As to his voice, this misfortune has took it away. You know what a sweet singer father is, 
but he couldn't get a note out for the children at tea, if you credit what I tell you. While speaking, Mrs. Plornish shook her head, and wiped her eyes, and looked retrospectively about the room. "'As to Mr. Baptist,' pursued Mrs. Plornish, "'whatever he'll do, when he comes to know of it, I can't conceive, nor yet imagine. He'd have been here before now, you may be sure, but that he's away on confidential business of your own. The persevering manner in which he follows up that business, and gives himself no rest from it, it really do,' said Mrs. Plornish, winding up in the Italian manner, "'as I say to him, Musha tonisha padrona.' Though not conceited, Mrs. Plornish felt that she had turned this Tuscan sentence with peculiar elegance. Mr. Plornish could not conceal his exultation in her accomplishments as a linguist. "'But what I say is, Mr. Clennam,' the good woman went on, "'there's always something to be thankful for, as I am sure you will yourself admit. Speaking in this room, it's not hard to think what the present something is.' It's a thing to be thankful for, indeed, that Miss Dorrit is not here to know it. Arthur thought she looked at him with particular expression. It's a thing, reiterated Mrs. Plornish, to be thankful for, indeed, that Miss Dorrit is far away. It's to be hoped she is not likely to hear of it. If you had been here to see it, sir, it's not to be doubted that the sight of you— Mrs. Plornish repeated those words, not to be doubted that the sight of you, in misfortune and trouble, would have been almost too much for her affectionate heart. There's nothing I can think of that would have touched Miss Dorrit so bad as that. Of a certainty Mrs. Plornish did look at him now, with a sort of quivering defiance in her friendly emotion. "'Yes,' said she, and it shows what notice father takes, though at his time of life, that he says to me this afternoon, which happy cottage knows I neither make it up nor anyways enlarge, Mary, it's much to be rejoiced in that Miss Dorrit is not on the spot to behold it. Those were father's words. Father's own words was, much to be rejoiced in, Mary, that Miss Dorrit is not on the spot to behold it. I says to father, then, I says to him, Father, you are right. That, Mrs. Plornish concluded, with the air of a very precise legal witness, is what passed betwixt father and me, and I'll tell you nothing but what did pass betwixt me and father. Mr. Plornish, as being of a more laconic temperament, embraced this opportunity of interposing with the suggestion that you should now leave Mr. Clennam to himself. "'For, you see,' said Mr. Plornish gravely, "'I know what it is, old girl,' repeating that valuable remark several times, as if it appeared to him to include some great moral secret. Finally the worthy couple went away, arm in arm. "'Little Dorrit, little Dorrit, again for hours, always little Dorrit.' Happily, if it ever had been so, it was over, and better over. Granted that she had loved him, and he had known it, and had suffered himself to love her, what a road to have led her away upon, the road that would have brought her back to this miserable place. 
he ought to be much comforted by the reflection that she was quit of it for ever, that she was, or would soon be, married. Vague rumours of her father's projects in that direction had reached Bleeding Heart Yard, with the news of her sister's marriage, and that the Marshalsea Gate had shut for ever on all those perplexed possibilities of a time that was gone. Dear little Dorrit, looking back upon his own poor story, she was its vanishing point. Everything in its perspective led to her innocent figure. He had travelled thousands of miles towards it. Previous unquiet hopes and doubts had worked themselves out before it. It was the centre of the interest of his life. It was the termination of everything that was good and pleasant in it. Beyond there was nothing but mere waste and darkened sky. As ill at ease as on the first night of his lying down to sleep within those dreary walls, he wore the night out with such thoughts. What time young John lay wrapped in peaceful slumber, after composing and arranging the following monumental inscription on his pillow. Stranger, respect the tomb of John Chivery, Jr., who died at an advanced age not necessary to mention. He encountered his rival in a distressed state, and felt inclined to have a round with him, but, for the sake of the loved one, conquered those feelings of bitterness, and became magnanimous. End of Book Two, Chapter Twenty Seven Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Fifty. Then. Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.